I think first and foremost is you surround yourself by people that you trust. Um, and I think Howard and I have a very strong, like trustworthy relationship. And then our entire team that is with us um, supports that uh, level of integrity and quality to the same degree. And I think part of the beauty of Westworld is that the um, expansive design opportunity is so varied. I mean, one day you're doing futurism, then you're doing World War II, then you're doing medieval world, then you're doing Shogun world. It's such a variety that you're never bored and you're constantly challenged in a way that keeps you kind of reinvigorated. You know, there were people on my show that were very strong in one particular suit of architecture, but they always had a passion to do another. And so, you know, part of the thing was um, we tried to help people uh, enlist their passions and try something different out a different style. And if time allowed, you know, we could let them kind of explore that for a bit. And, and generally, because they were so vested and passionate about it, it paid off immensely. Um, and so I think it's just, it's a matter of, like I said, just finding people that you trust. And we had an unbelievable uh, crew um, and team uh, surrounding us. I really do feel like the work informs what you're doing. And so as long as the work is engaging, that's what the important thing is. As long as you, as someone that's like asking you and valuing your opinion, then you're, you're in the right place. And action. Welcome back to the Art of the Shot podcast, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we'll be exploring the production design of Westworld with an exclusive interview with not one, but two key figures responsible for crafting the extraordinary design of this show. Production designer Howard Cummings and art director John Carlos. Uh, my name is Howard Cummings. I'm the production designer on Westworld season two and three. My name is John Carlos. I'm the supervising art director for Westworld, and I've been with the show since season one. The two of them, along with their close collaborator, set decorator Julie Achapinti, are all nominated for an Emmy this year for Outstanding Production Design, and I'm thrilled to share our conversation with you. Since this is a long one at two and a half hours, I just want to point out that I've added a new feature, time-stamped notes detailing key moments from our discussion, now viewable in the episode description. And in this episode, you'll hear fascinating behind-the-scenes stories you won't get anywhere else. You'll learn about the deep level of collaboration and teamwork involved in crafting Westworld, the diverse and unexpected locations they shot in, the architectural inspiration for their vision of the world in 2058, how production design works with visual effects, how they designed and built real working sci-fi concept vehicles in only a few weeks, the vital role of understanding lighting and considering practical lighting in the process of designing and building sets, and advice from their vastly different career paths, including the rarely discussed aspects that are key to succeeding at the craft. If you haven't seen Westworld yet, I can't recommend it enough. I know there's a lot of amazing content out there right now, but Westworld deserves your full attention. It's one of those shows where every element is exceptional. From the cinematography, which you can learn about in episode two of this podcast, and the directing, to the writing, acting, music, and production design, the more you pay attention and think about what you're watching, the more you'll be rewarded, which is part of what's created such an engaged fan base, something the show has become known for. Give it a watch on HBO Max, where all three seasons are now available to stream. 
but you're here now, so stick around and enjoy my conversation with production designer Howard Cummings and art director John Carlos. Howard and John, welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast. I'm so happy to be speaking with you. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. So let's jump right in. Um, I'd love to start with how you guys both created your careers and got your start. When did you know you want to do what you do, and how did you get to be where you are now? Howard, let's start with you. Uh, I was a biology major and didn't realize, I realized that I didn't understand a thing that was going on in organic chemistry, and I changed to theater for some reason. Uh, while I was in the theater department, they uh, gave me an assignment. I'd never drawn anything in my life, and I drew something, and I apparently won some award, and they said, this is what you're doing. All the professors got together, and they said, you're going to be a designer. And I went, I am. And then uh, they kind of set the course for that. And it's a good thing they did, because it turns out that's kind of the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> I really don't really have anything to fall back on that would be different. So uh, I, uh, yeah, I uh, ended up going to NYU in graduate school and um, immediately started working right after I got, like right when I got out of school and landed a film job and decided that was it. So, uh, and was fortunately, you know, uh, I, I always have, uh, designed and I never really kind of came up through the ranks. I just ended up doing small stuff and the small stuff got bigger and bigger. And, um, so I kind of learned, you know, on the job and, um, uh, mostly because I'm not the world's greatest draftsman. <laughs> and so I didn't really have anything that to fall back on either. So I just got into it. So I started with small, small, uh, shows and kind of worked my way up. Wow. Interesting. So you say, if if design is what you you know claim is all you're good at though i mean isn't that like hugely all encompassing because you need to understand how things work you need to understand how they fit together you know if you're designing for um various you know worlds or time periods or even just different um countries you need to know a lot of details yeah well i mean that actually is a benefit of my job is because um, just by the nature of it, I have to, you know, learn uh, new things all the time. And um, that's one thing I really like about it. And yes, you're right. I, I, I'm, the one thing I do actually does encompass, like, theoretically, it encompasses anything you're looking at once the camera starts rolling. So it's sort of the whole world. And so, uh, and um, that is, uh, you know, really what's, also very engaging about it it's it's really you know it's a fun job I mean it's hard but it's a really fun job because I get I have all lots of random knowledge about crazy things based on projects that I've done oh I can well imagine it must be your your entire career is almost like being an expert in so many things yeah except that like if you threw me into an office situation i'd fail miserably but mm -hmm. but i do know lots of you know odd things about you know you know i don't know semi-conducting super colliders and things like that you know so it's like wow. or <laughs> or i did a movie called um contagion and so i yeah. went to um 
every bio lab in the country and, and, and uh, worked with the WHO and um, uh, uh, the CDC and met all the world's leading virologists and bat experts and things like that. And um, thank God for my biology um, background because I could actually talk to them. And so and that was so crazy on that show because uh, I was like Mr. Science because they would use me as I would, I could take what the scientists were saying and try to dumb it down so that people understood what the basic concepts were. So, oh, cool. yeah. So I had this one, you were a little translator. I was, it was like, so like when Kate Winslet arrived, they said, Howard, you have to go meet with Kate. And, uh, um, this guy, Dr. Ian Lipkin, who does, who, he isolated the West Nile virus. He was the consultant at that point. And they said, okay, you have to explain to Kate what the r naught of a disease is. And that is the rate of spread. So of how, how a disease spreads. So I did this very simple graph and she said, oh, I get it. And that was it. So it was like, because, wow. because I, 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 kind of knew I had my finger in a tiny bit of their world and I knew it enough, you know, to be able to visualize it for everybody. Oh, I love that. Cause at the start of the pandemic, I rewatched that film. And when she explained what the R naught is, it clicked for me really, really clearly. Yeah. You're, you're really screwed if the R naught is one to four, which it was in contagion. Yeah. Fortunately for COVID it's one to two. So no, mm -hmm. It's not as uh, crazy. Yeah, but I remember at the beginning, there were all sorts of numbers thrown around. It was very concerning, especially after watching Contagion. Yeah. Contagion is yeah. like my generation's jaws now in terms of yeah, like making everyone little... <laughs> afraid of going out into the world. Yeah, what was, what was the, I think, you know, uh, I worked with Steven Soderbergh um, for like 10 years. and uh, Yeah, I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, and he, on that you know, he actually, you know, he expects you to do your job. And that means you need to bring stuff to the plate. He's not going to feed you the information. And so, which is great because, but it's also a big responsibility. However, you know, it was, um, on that one, he just said, you know, Howard, I don't want any fake movie stuff in here. He said, the real thing is so scary, no one could ever make something scarier. So you, yeah. you, your job is to make it as accurate as you can. And so uh, that was, uh, uh, and he was, and he, he, he based everything on that. That's why it's kind of resonating now because it was based on science. I mean, we actually, for that one, you know, you, you know how to make these like molecular models of viruses and they kind of, you look at them and I'm going like, I, I never understood how they made those things. And I go, I thought they were just some kind of representation of something, but actually the, the, you build it by, by running genetic code. And so in order to make the model that was in the movie, we actually had to this guy did his thesis paper. He created that virus, the actual virus, like genetically, and ran all the genetic code to build the modeling because all the modeling is accurate to that virus. It wasn't fake. Wow. So, but that's like weird, weird stuff that I know, like based yeah. on what you, what you just said. There's a lot of weird stuff I know. Oh, so. I, I'm sure. And I, I could talk to you about Contagion for a long time now, given <laughs> given the relevance of that film at the moment, but I don't want to get sidetracked. I do have one question, though, that I'm super curious about. 
I remember learning about like the biosafety lab levels yeah. and thinking, you know, and, and kind of being fascinated by it at one point and researching like what's the history of these things? How did they figure out how what was required and how to build this and make them international standards that everyone kind of kept to? And did you did you go into an actual one or did you try and build one? you know, build a set that, that looked like one. Well, they're very, we actually entertained the idea of shooting in um, a primate lab at Tulane because we had connections with the, um, with that university, but it was, we couldn't get insured. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure to bring a film crew into a lab that, that is that secure. It's impossible probably. No, I, I built our labs in the carpentry shop because we didn't actually have a wow. stage, uh, uh, the carpentry shop. And then, um, uh, but, you know, and they have to walk around in those suits, right? You know, and, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, the big puffy ones with the negative pressure? Yeah, the big, yeah, because there's negative pressure. So we actually, but you have to actually do, you know, I remember the production manager head exploded when I told him, you know, there's only one way to make this work is you have to actually create a whole pumping air pumping system to hook up to the suits otherwise the actors won't be able to breathe and i said so we kind of have to do it for real and he was going he was like you're kidding me you know because it was it wasn't cheap and it was also really complicated and you know we're doing it really fast but i had um i had an advisor from ucla who who ran the biosafety labs in ucla and um uh she really helped me with like all the you know trying to get trying to get a mass spectrometer you know from somebody mm-hmm. it you know it can't go to the prop house right you know so we had to convince these manufacturers to let us you know and they, the equipment costs a fortune so it was really challenging and you you couldn't even buy the suits for example like you had to make them uh no you can buy those suits okay but you you chose to make them yeah so, uh, but, but, uh, oh no, but we had to make the, uh, we had to do all the hose connections and uh-huh. the air pumping system and all that had to be functional. So, hmm. so for the actors, it's great because they're doing the real thing. They're not pretending it was all real. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was wild. No, I, they, I, they sent me into some bio, I've been, went into a couple level four labs and I went into the U S Amarid. Um, you know, secret lab near Washington, D.C., you know. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was That's cool. amazing. And like the big cryogenic preservation uh, tanks. Yeah. That must, you, you had that built? No, we, we got them from a manufacturer. They lent them to us. Uh, but that was uh, hard to convince them that. And, um, um, oh, I love <laughs> I can't tell the story, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay, I'll just move it. But I <laughs> another time trying to get the research for what those rooms look like is nearly yeah. impossible. And that's kind of my point. Yeah, it seems like an incredible challenge. Yeah, no, I was I was on a tour of a um, laboratory. I won't say where it was, but uh, they insisted that they did not have one of these facilities, and I actually saw it through a tiny little window and a door and I wow. went into it. It was like, and yeah, when I let them go around the corner and I ran back and I looked into it and took a picture real quick. Oh, and, sneaky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was like, uh, and they said, you're not allowed in there. And I go, I know yeah, because you said you, this didn't exist and oh. it totally exists, but it was, yeah. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do to get the right, you know, 
information. Yeah, gosh, it's like espionage almost. <laughs> yeah, it can be. It can oh be. my goodness. Well, um, that I mean it, that basically creates a or goes into one of the themes that I'd like to discuss with both of you, which is about just what it takes to create a world, and especially when you're doing it kind of from scratch, like for you know a sci-fi series like Westworld. Um, so just keep that in mind because I definitely want to come back to like what it takes to, to create, you know, what shows up on screen beyond what, you know, lighting and actors bring, you have to build a world Yeah, and usually make it functional. Yeah. And as much as, um, uh, you know, the amount of detail and stuff that had to go into say something like contagion, you have to bring that same attitude to, um, creating the future you know, in something like Westworld. And, and that was, uh, and I'll have to say that, you know, uh, a lot of sort of the creative and directional spark came from Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy. Uh, but uh, Jonah specifically had a vision of what this future was. And it's all based on, um, you know, where, you know, and it, it wasn't just made up. I mean, he, he looked, he's looked into, you know, what is, what is travel going to be like? What, wh how are people going to live? You know, and he, these were all considered, I mean, you can, one thing you can see just to relate back to briefly to Contagion again, was that they, uh, Jonah and Lisa were very insistent that uh, the extras wear masks, mm. uh, you know. So if you watch some of the crowd scenes, uh, you'll see that people are wearing masks. And they. And it was very important to them because they said at one point there's going to be, um, you know, viral epidemics that we can't we can't control. And that's going to be that's going to be part of the legacy that's going to be passed forward. So mm. uh, we incredibly you, prescient. Yeah. And it was hard to get people like, for instance, you know, by the time, you know, that, you know, they talked about that and then you're in this, you know, you're standing on set and then you realize, Oh my God, nobody's wearing masks. And then you run out and you like, you know, the prop guy had them all in the truck and I said, get them out. We got to get them out there. And, you know, Jonah was very insistent that this, be a thing because he felt it was important to telling what the future was yeah for sure well during you know the the season finale when they were having the riots in la and then afterwards when that actually happened i had major flashbacks to to westworld i mean i when i watched that i remember specifically thinking like you know based on being young probably and just not having experiences with <laughs> riots but i thought this is not something that would be that realistic. I just don't see people, especially you know, in the future, uh, behaving like this. It didn't. It didn't feel that real to me. And then when you know when everything happened, and of course people wearing masks while doing it, it was like, oh wow, okay, yeah, that was very grounded in real human behavior. Yeah, John, I I think um, John headed up all of that because uh, at that point I had. Um, it worked at the very end. I was working on Lisa Joy's uh, mm. um, reminiscence huh? movie. Yeah, reminiscence. Yeah. I moved on to reminiscence. So John got to design the last couple of episodes, and uh, that was like a huge part of it was trying to shut down these Los Angeles streets and create these riot sequences, which were uh, 
very challenging. Yeah, and they weren't just simple riots. They weren't just people cheering and, and yelling and putting their fists up. They were burning things, knocking things over, throwing, you know, grenades and everything. So you guys pulled off an amazing uh, sequence there. Well, that leads me to to John. I, you know, you. It's interesting. Thank you for that little background, Howard, because. John, you're listed actually as like a production designer on this season as well as art director. So um, if you can talk to me um, kind of just like what um, Howard was telling me about his background, can you just start by telling me when you knew you wanted to do what you're doing and how you how you got to be doing it? Yeah, I think uh, I, I kind of fell into it by accident, um, like Howard, but when I was when I was really young, um, growing up, my parents had this house with these giant picture windows facing the street, and I used to kind of create these tableaus of Halloween uh, vignettes in each of the windows facing the street. Oh, and cool! I think my parents were mortified that they were probably raising some like twisted serial killer. Um, but then Christmas would come around, and I would do the same thing, and it would be all pretty Christmas land. Uh, so they thought, okay, maybe this kid's okay. <laughs> um, it was the creative expression it wasn't what it was directed towards <laughs> right uh, although I think I've always had an affinity towards the dark um, and uh, I kind of fell into it um, you know one of our, our coaches in high school was also the theater teacher which was a very interesting combination and he kind of got me into painting and designing the theater, uh, the theater scenery um, and so my uh, studies were at UCLA uh, in theater just like Howard um, and I always knew I kind of wanted to go into film. So um, studying um, play analysis and, and theater design. And then um, once I graduated, moved into uh, to film design. And um, I've actually known Howard for about a decade now. I first worked with him um, doing uh, some reshoots for uh, Contagion and Haywire, actually. Mm, very cool. So what, what does it like? Do you require training to be an art director? Is there like a, a film school you have to go to or some kind of, you know, official like, you know, job training? Uh, there are there are schools now um, that do have uh, production design tracks where, uh, you know, you do, do learn CAD and drafting and concept illustration. Um, it wasn't as prevalent, uh, I think, when I was going to school. It's, it's much uh, more widespread now, which is fantastic. Um, we had an unbelievable team of young, talented um, assistants and art directors on Westworld, all that came out of training from um, AFI and Chapman, NYU. Um, so it's it's really amazing to kind of see um, the younger generation coming up, being so uh, trained with such strength. Um, yeah. But wow. I think, like Howard said, you learn so much of it on the job because you're just kind of thrown into the mix of it and you have to just paddle. Yeah. But in order to do that, it can be a little bit of a catch-22 because how do you even, you know, get on those jobs if you don't have some sort of validation from a university or having already worked on, you know, jobs where they are impressed with your work? So how did you, how did you actually start working on on films and, and television series? Well, I, I lied to get my first job, so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, Howard, you might not be setting a good precedent for our listeners here. You're, I, I, you're like stealing government secrets. You're lying to get jobs. Oh gosh. I had a I had a roommate, and uh, when I first moved to New York, and and uh, she told me, she said, "Look, this is what you do." She said, "They're not going to hire you. You don't have any experience, so lie." And then when you get in there, 
generally they won't fire you because they're going to be embarrassed and they'll teach you how to do it. And I don't recommend this, but that's exactly how I got my first theater job was that I completely lied and said that I could arc weld. Wow. wow. That's quite a thing to lie about too, because if you're, if you're asked to do it and you don't know what you're doing, well, I, that would not I, end well. I had like three months before the job started. It was the highest paying job. I looked through the list of jobs and I go, oh, arc welder. Why is that the highest paying job? So I, I said, oh, I could do that. And so I, I ran out and I took an arc welding class and um, okay. uh, I, I did learn, but I was, it was quite clear when I, when they started having me weld something, they're going, you don't know how to do this, do you? And I go, no, <laughs> not really. And they, <laughs> oh, they said, okay, we're going to make you the painter. And then I, I actually was a, became a scenic artist and I, um, I did, I was, I was good at painting, not so good at arc welding. I was really good at paint mm. painting. And I, I had an early career. I started out when I was in, putting myself through school, I was painting, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, uh, mostly theatrical stuff, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, so I don't recommend lying necessarily, but I also meant you just have to put yourself out there. That's the only yeah. way. And, um, a little uh, fake it till you make it never really hurt anyone. Yeah. And it was like, John said that, you know, now the, it, there, it is more formalized now when I started, it was way less formalized, uh, production design actually didn't even the title when I started, didn't even exist. Uh, it be, it sort of started ha- that came about somewhere in the early eighties. Really? Yeah, I, I yeah, could have sworn I, I've seen production nah. designer on films from the at least the seventies. I mean, look at yeah, like, it, Star Wars. Don't don't they have production designer listed on? Um, yeah, but what was that like seventy nine though? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy seven. Yeah, I thought. Yeah. But it 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 was rare it, that rare mm. rare that it happened. It was like art direct. It was always art direction, art direction and still yeah. now and still now the way the um uh still now in the way the uh, guild is set up, I'm technically an art director until the end of the project. And uh, what you you'll see that it's really interesting when you go into IMDb, mm-hmm. you'll see that projects that are about to you know that are in production. Often, often the production designer is not listed, and that's only because you get awarded it after the show. It's after you've done the work, and the union allows you to have the title production designer. Oh, so wow. there's still this, yeah, it's this crazy archaic thing that that still still exists. So like they go, hey, aren't you working on this? And I go, I am, but it's this union thing that doesn't allow you to do it because I'm technically an art director until until I'm awarded the position. So it's kind of interesting. I, I would hope that will change uh, sometime soon, but I have two questions about that. One is, do is there a whole process of like proving and making the case that you are the production designer? Do you have to like lobby for that title or does it just happen because, you know, there has to be a production designer and then the union just looks into, okay, who did the job? Um, I've never had to prove that. Um and I've only heard of one person where um, there was sort of a dual thing going on. And um, so, but no, you don't have to prove it. It's just okay. sort of, I think they just, I think it's a production thing. Right. And it's just, it's a formality. It's, I kind of like it because it's like so old fashioned. It makes me feel like I, you know, in the studio days, um, 
production designers always wore, you know, a sport coat and tie. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, it's this kind of thing where I think it's a hangover from, you know, long ago. And I, in a weird way, I kind of think it's, you know, charming. Yeah. Or, I don't know. I guess it could be yeah. cool. You're like earning your job title. It feels like uh, each job is a chance to like prove yourself in a way. Yeah. Hmm. And then, well, my other question is, does that affect your pay? Because obviously, you know, on, on jobs, you get paid by, you know, your your position, your title, whether you're above the line or below the line, for example. No, and it's weird because, like, for instance, my deal, it'll say that the credit will say production designer. You know, it's okay. like a, it's a formality. And it, does, formality. And okay. it does not affect your pay, no. Okay. Cool. Well, it affects your pay if you, if you don't get that, but yes. But, uh-huh. Okay, got it's it. Ju- it's just an archaic... Yeah. Crazy leftover thing. Got it. Okay. I don't know why I got into that, but <laughs> No, no, no. It's interesting. It's really interesting. People people don't know this um unless they're really working, you know, in in the production department, you know, I would assume um that's not common knowledge. Even even people, you know, like a cinematographer, they may not even know that. I, I don't think people on, on who work with me kind of yeah. understand that, you know, honestly. It's so. interesting. Well, um John, if you um, if you can shed some light into the same thing, how did you get your how'd you get your start? How'd you get your first jobs? Um, so I I went to UCLA, and um, luckily the the program there was kind of well tied into the industry, being that it's here in town. So uh, started with what, in, what did you study uh, there? Design and production for film and television, uh, and, and well, sorry, theater theater film and television. Okay, cool. So they had a program specifically for it. Yeah. Um, so it was a predominantly theater okay. background, and then they had some film and television um, uh, branches within that. Um, so my first job was Team America, um, working under Ramsey Avery, who was a supervising art director. Oh, cool! Um, and uh, so it was during the summer, uh, during one of you know one of my summer breaks, and uh, went with them as a as like a production assistant, um, and kind of kept my contacts. And I've I've worked with Ramsey multiple times since uh, he's now um, also designing. And uh, uh, also, when I when I first graduated, I uh, worked with um, someone from an internship that was doing an animation project called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or TMNT. Um, so I worked on mm-hmm. that, uh, basically starting out with storyboards, and then moved kind of into like coordination on that project. And I actually stayed with that animation studio for about four years. Um, and it was based in Hong Kong. So I was traveling back and forth between Hong Kong and LA, um, helping to oversee the pre-production development and um, art direction. Um, and then thereafter kind of moved back into live action, which is where I wanted to be. And um, have been doing both features and television uh, ever since and kind of traveling the world to do that. Very nice. Wow. Well, it seems like the way you got your start feels like a um, kind of like a culmination of all your childhood you know, uh, experiences playing with, you know, Halloween and Christmas decorations and, you know, toys and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Did it feel like that? Well, and like Howard, I, I like a good party too. So um, like getting to be a big kid and getting paid for it. Yeah, it, it is. And and like Howard, Howard and I both like to host. And, uh, and I think finding any opportunity to have a party, not for the party's sake, but to be able to like kind of theme it out and do the environmental design. <laughs> so that was a, that got me through college. <laughs> um, oh, I love it. And uh, who does, who tends to do the rap parties? Uh, the studio. Does, yeah, we stay out of that. But uh, 
But uh, as a you part of Westworld, um, it became, um, it actually became, it mostly got driven by our, our uh, office coordinator. But um, we would have um, Friday or evening, <laughs> we, would, <laughs> we would have theme parties every Friday evening, which, invo- which really? involved costumes. And so, uh, and oh unfortunately, we always seem to have our production meetings sort of on the day that we have this theme. <laughs> day. And so I would show up in the production meetings looking like uh, Willy Wonka. Or, you know, like, <laughs> like this very kind of serious thing. And it was like, there I am in like a pink wig and something. Else. I don't know. It was like, and then, uh, but our, wow. our office coordinator, she kind of insisted that we go full force on that. And so, and, you know, we're so busy and it's like, really, you're going to make, you know, do I really have to come up with a theme costume today amongst all the other things? crises that were mm-hmm. but um you know in the end she was completely right because it really uh you know we you know as a show uh the pace at which you have to work for Westworld the amount of stuff that we do every week um you know the build times for sets I, I remember in season two when I I said oh you know it, it's a minimum of six weeks to get something big built. And I swear by, by at the end of, of season three, we were doing big stuff in two weeks. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. And it, it, that is really hard on the design department uh, because it means that all these people that work for us, for me and John, have to take on a lot of responsibility. And, and then, so communication is really very important in that, you know, because, you know, I am off, you know, in Singapore or whatever, and everybody's moving ahead. And so, but communication is like utmost importance. And we, if you were on the Westworld team, we would require you to like bring your A game because there was no other it, it was all happening and it was all happening really fast and you take responsibility for what it is. And so it's a lot of pressure and it wasn't for everybody. I mean, we did go through <laughs> groups of people who kind of, there was a fair amount of burnout, but, um, but mm. in the middle of all that, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing either, you know? So the fun yeah. part of Friday afternoons was got even more important, even, even when it was really, really mm. tough it it became more important because um keeping morale up was uh that was that was just as important as getting the sets out otherwise everything would fall apart you'd get just overwhelmed and and it's just too much uh just because we tried to every show we you know every episode is more like its own movie you know what I mean? It's that the approach, the, it's a very filmic yeah. approach. And that that's something that appealed to me about this series in general. And why I came in on the second season was that uh, it had a real film approach. And I know because you've talked to Paul Cameron that it, it just, he, you know, he's one of the ones who instigated that, you know, it was all part of, you know, we're going to shoot on film and it's going to, it's going to have this, yeah. you know, it's all inspired by the great Westerns, you know, that you've seen. And, but it's still, even though you're doing the great Westerns, you know, the same thing applied to when you're thinking about the future 
how are we going to shoot this future? How, how, it, how is that going to be presented to people? And so, uh, and that was really important to like Jonah and Nolan. It was that, you know, how do we approach this? And so, you know, he said, I need, he said, just like in season one and two, Utah was this giant, like, expansive element that was added to the show, you know? Uh, and so he said, that means these, the city that we're going to, the, the new world, you know, the, the future world, the real world, quote unquote, had to have that kind of feeling. And this led us to start to explore things like what is the city of the future? And um, so we started looking for how to take Los Angeles. And certainly Los Angeles, thank God, recently has expanded and grown. And so we got into a lot of buildings that were not even, you know, people hadn't moved into and could work in them. And uh, and they were all hitting the themes that we were hoping to to that were critical to Jonah, like elevated plazas where, you know, where people living space is now raised up so that transportation can stay below. These were all really important things. So when we were looking at cities around the world, like what could we use to enhance Los Angeles of the future? Um, we came upon Singapore. And so we actually, uh, entertain the idea of going to Singapore and trying to do a unit in Singapore. And that was to, and so Singapore is integrated through the whole show as future Los Angeles, you know, like the archetype of future Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. One, one thing that was kind of great in, when I was doing season two, uh, I got word from, um, uh, Nathan Crowley who did, uh, the pilot for Westworld. And he said, Hey, I know this architect and he's really interested in, uh, he really loves Westworld and he, um, uh, would love to come by. Do, would you, and I said, who is it? And he goes, it's Bjarke Ingels. And I said, Bjarke Ingels. And he goes, yeah. And I go, you're kidding me. He said, I said, he's who I'm pulling, you know, in season two, I was pulling references for, what the future looked like and I was pulling mm -hmm. his buildings and I, you wow. know, I, and for people who don't know, he is a celebrated architect, right? Yeah. And yeah. he's like, he's young. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I think Bjarke 38 maybe. And he's from, uh, he's Danish and he does these incredibly, it, he's like it. And I was going, Bjarke wants to come over and like, sure. Yeah, I absolutely would. That'd be awesome. Please. You know? And then, so <laughs> <laughs> it was uh i think i think we were in the middle of shogun world in in uh season two and Bjarke shows up and it there's a lot going on and i we were trying to convert a western town into a japanese <laughs> village which is <laughs> kind of what we ended up doing and which weirdly you know when i was walking down the street i i think the executive producer said can't we do it somewhere here and i said it's it's a Western town. How the hell is that going to work? And I, you know, as soon as I made that kind of snide remark, I said, okay, on the way back from his office, I just walked through a, sort of a street that wasn't used very much that was in this Western town. And I just go, you know what? This weirdly could work. And so 
I came back and I told John and I got John and we went out and I, cause it was right. Our offices were in trailer uh, right next to it. And I was going, come out here and like, am I crazy? Could this work? And, uh, and then proceeded to dump it all on him, honestly. <laughs> it was like, okay, here's a bunch of pictures. This is what it's going to be. This is how the layout is. We have to put facades on all of this, and we have to do this, and this is where the tea house is. And I said, good luck. <laughs> he kind of like, <laughs> kind of handed it to him. And it was like, um, <laughs> so a lot of, of what came out in that was, was John. But it was like, but... Um, Oh, I kind of veered off what I was talking about, but, uh, oh, BRK came and he, um, showed up with a friend and he's, I said, okay. And I said, okay. And I kind of showed him around and he was fascinated because the, he couldn't believe the scenery because he'd never seen stage scenery before and how, and he couldn't get over how substantial it looked. And then when you get behind it, you see, it's all made of Luan and framing, you know, it's super simple. And he was, and, um, and then I said, oh, hey, do you want to go see filming? And he goes, yeah. And then he was like, and he was there for six hours. And I was like, and and then um, <laughs> he went and he met, uh, like Jonah had at least some time. And I said, Jonah, you know, it's, can you talk to Bjarke? And the two of them were like peas in a pod. And it was like, so uh, when it came time to do the future, you know, they, they had already they'd struck up a friendship. So Bjarke uh, was kind of advised us and helped us. And he actually lent us a lot of projects to create that sort of skyline of Los Angeles. So we kind of, we kind of stole from Singapore because we were shooting in Singapore. So we had to integrate Singaporean buildings into Los Angeles. Right. And then, um, but he, then we also, the other buildings were projects that Bjarke did that weren't necessarily realized. I mean, he sent me over 450 projects that I had to sort through. And by projects, what do you mean? Like buildings that just haven't been finished yet or designed? Correct. No. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, both. But okay. mostly buildings that didn't get realized. Uh -huh. And so, uh, but that was great because we, you know, one of the, you know, in trying to figure out what L.A. was, we were going to create, you know, one thing, uh, Jay Worth, who's um, the sort of uh, visual, he, he's, a, you know, Viz Effects, uh, head of Viz Effects, and also, like, just an amazing person and uh, just awesome. It's just great working with him. He he said, look, Howard, I don't want to just randomly throw buildings into where we're shooting. I said, he said, we, I said, I want it to be organized so that he said, because people are going to start to see it. You can't repeat things. And he said, so we kind of need to lay out as you, as you start adding these, if you, as you start concepting areas, we need to make kind of a map of Los Angeles, of future Los Angeles, and and designate where these buildings are that you've gravitated to. Because uh, I, you know, they, the way the process worked is that I would do keyframes for um, uh, the major scenes. And then I would, then those would go to the VisFX department. And so that they had a direction on what Los Angeles was, but not only that, for us, and it was really smart, Jay 
we ended up create you ended up creating a map of what where these buildings are landing, and how Los Angeles was developing. So, um, hmm. for instance, when you're at um, MacArthur Park, there's uh, we had a couple of sequences where the AirPod lands in MacArthur Park, and they're trying to get rid of Dolores, and mm-hmm. there's a big shootout and all that stuff. Uh, you can really see the skyline there. So you can see there's sort of there's sort of a still we kind of kept the backbone design of of how Los Angeles currently is growing. It's now seg- it's segmented in, 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 into central Los Angeles and, and then down by the Staples Center Southern. But it, we felt like it would eventually all connect and maybe also move north into Chinatown. And so we created a whole map there. And Jonah had this idea that um, the LA river would actually become a river. Hmm. And so, so we, there's some sequences in Singapore that we shot. And the idea was that would be the, the created waterfront based off of where the LA river was. Oh, I see. You know, so, wow. so you, because so that, you know, adding what's missing in Los Angeles now is sort of, greenery and water and all that stuff and that in the future that was part of the thing that jonah was saying originally was like this isn't a dystopian future Mm -hmm. it it doesn't appear to be a dystopian future let me put it that way yeah that he wanted to to look like it's there's prosperity that that someone's figured out a way to deal with pollution global warm yeah global warming and you can actually it never so we there all these things all these things were in there for instance like when you know there's you see bernard in the very beginning and he's uh in the distance you see these kind of crazy monolithic towers those were all supposed to represent carbon eating machines which Uh which and so so we had um it, it appeared again i think when um uh, outside the hotel when um, Bernard and Stubbs, you know, kind of hang or hiding out. And so it, it, we had a, a lot of, you know, what's not even in the show. is super was, thought out. Yeah, it was very thought out. Yeah, exactly. that's amazing. I mean, there's such attention to detail in this show. You touched on so many things. I mean, the it just goes to show really how considered... Um, all the choices are. And, you know, looking back, to me at least, it seems quite obvious that if we're going to make it, uh, you know, into the future and be uh, in any sort of a a elevated version of where we are now and not just a dystopia where it's, you know, human life is not even able to be sustained anymore, then we would have to naturally figure out uh, many of our, our, you know, global challenges. So it it's a, you know, a very realistic picture of a future in which we are actually, you know, thriving as human beings. Um, you touched on so many things, though. I mean, the the idea of of having fun on set and keeping sort of a, a light tone um, and making that something that's actually, you know, very uh, important to making everything actually work and flow because there's so many things you're doing, so many, uh, you know, so, so much intensity and, and the constant pressure of making everything happen on in a certain time yeah and then you touched well, yeah. do you want to say oh, anything did, more about that well i was just going to say that jc actually can speak to this 
because, you know, I, I came in on the second season and I inherited, uh, um, you know, a fair amount of the crew, mostly because they all wanted to come back. And, and despite long, you know, we don't shoot, I mean, it's long hours. It's not like yeah. we're not doing two broke girls, you know, it, it really is <laughs> consuming. And so, but what I found when I got there was like, oh my God, like it's not every single person cares. Yeah. It shows. And, and then, and, 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 and I mean, they really do like all the way down, you know, the grip and electric, everybody, they all care and they all are actually interested in like what the show, you know, what's going on with the show. It, it, they're all engaged. And so uh, that doesn't happen that often. You know, it, it's not just a job for people. And, uh, you know, that has its downside because, you know, none of us got to see our families very much during all of it. And John can speak to that. But I, I think John could tell you, like, because he had the whole history of, like, uh, season one, season two, season three, and watching people who, like, you know, said, you know, who after working long hours in the dust and the dirt and, and, you know, which was in the earlier sequences, still wanting, coming back with the same enthusiasm, that's really kind of rare, you know, in the, in the business. And so, I mean, I mean, we have this one guy who, uh, Damon Leibowitz, he's like the, he does all the practical lighting Oh my God! There is so much practical lighting in these sets. It, it, oh you yeah! Know, it, I wanted to ask you about yeah, it. Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, you know, I a lot of sets. You know, if you look at the labs, the original Delos labs, it's they're really black voids with glass, and it's all lighting. And I think beautiful as a result. They're just beautiful. They're so simple. They're so elemental. And uh, there was constantly something we'd have to talk about, like, because it's so easy to veer off of that, that this, like, it, they, it tapped into something, like, just incredibly simple, but, but it's all lighting. And so, uh, <laughs> John can talk about this, like, because a lot of times I'll say something and then John has to actually go to the producers and say, yeah, this is why this is important <laughs> and kind of help defend why is Howard gone off the rails and why, why <laughs> is the lighting in the ambulance costing $5,000? You know, it was like, uh -huh. because, it, you know, and it, because, well, A, you know, in that regard, we were shooting it practically and we were doing a lot of the lighting, the built, the built in, there's so much built in lighting and that is also lighting the actors. So you have to. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And that's something I I had a lot of experience work with because Steven Soderbergh actually almost completely lights with practicals. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's definitely a gaffer and a very valuable gaffer that I work with. But I, I just spent 10 years dealing with practical lighting. And, and that's when I looked at Westworld, I'm going wow, they, they understand this. This is a you know, very important thing. It's like, I think in, you know, modern current day production design, if you don't understand lighting, you're screwed. I mean, you have, 
it's part of what makes something look good. And, uh, you know, yeah. and what grounds the reality of, of what you're looking at as being an actual space, because I notice, you know, the lighting when I feel like it is clearly lit from some big, you know, uh, film light that's just lighting the actors just so they look good. It takes me out of, of the, you know, of the scene because I'm not, you know, grounded in the reality of, of how those actors would actually be um, impacted by, you know, the dynamics of the space. Yeah. And a lot of that responsibility falls onto the, the decorator, uh, Julie, mm-hmm. Julie Ojapinchi, who's also been there since season one. Uh, in many ways, Julie is kind of like the heart and soul of the show. It's, a, it's very funny. She just, be, and <laughs> because she's, uh, it, she's a total character. I love her to death, and she's a total character, and she's very outspoken. Like in a production me- meeting, she'll go, "Are you kidding? We're not doing any of that." <laughs> you know, she'll she'll like call people out on stuff, and it it be, and mostly because she is very attuned to what the show is. So, mm-hmm. so when I came on, I was going, "Who's this?" you know, broad, I don't know, that's a, a terrible word, but, but it applies to Jules in a very, in a very positive way. Uh, she's just somebody who knows her stuff and she knows, she knows the show so well that she, you know, if you look at the stuff that she does, she, she's always influencing what's going on and she's making choices, not just to, uh, for instance, pick some sheets for a kid's bedroom. She she references the West, and so the sheets have little arrows on them. And then and then the fans all go crazy because they realize somebody's actually paying attention to this. And that's her. She's completely, you know. So as a design partner, that's invaluable, you know. Yeah. So, and I think John, you know, at, at, you know, at the end when I, you know, had to leave, John took over. Uh, and I think he began to realize how important she was to, you know, making things, you know, cause we're doing a lot of location work and that relies heavily often on set decorating and, and especially lighting. And she, she's totally supportive of that. Wouldn't you say John? Absolutely. And, and I think Jules, like you said, just, she lives and breathes Westworld. She is Westworld. Um, and so many of her choices are, subconsciously instinctual but so aligned with the psyche of of westworld and the the universe so sometimes she's making a decision not because she wants to plant an easter egg but because her you know her gut instinct is this is this is the correct choice and she's so in tune on a on a level so beyond um intimately with with the world that every choice is a bespoke um very selective choice but for her it's just second nature yeah, oh, it it feels like it comes across in Westworld. I mean, the the fan base is like totally primed to like find all the meaning and all these little small details, and there's so much thought clearly put into all those details. It to me, it speaks of a of a level of craft that's quite frankly inspiring. And I I was actually going to ask you guys, Howard, you touched on like so many things that I wanted to ask you guys, um, you know, like about Easter eggs, like. 
are you guys told specifically to put Easter eggs in because of the meaning that they're going to have? Are those like really like dictated choices or are they maybe, um, I'm sure some of them are, but you know, I also assume probably because of what the show has just set like the tone for that a lot of those choices are just like uh, jokes and callbacks you guys are doing because of the conversation Westworld has with its audience. And, you know, you guys are making choices anyway, so you might as well make choices that are consistent with the show. But how does it actually work? Are you guys like told specifically to put Easter eggs in? No. Uh, well, no, I'll, I'll say, well, that's not exactly true. There are things like, for instance, um, uh, Jonah Nolan vets all the props. So we have this prop master named Richie Kramer, and the props are really important. They're not just, you know, background. Uh, there, there's things he's communicating with people about, you know, and it's, uh, and so, uh, for instance, I think we had this, um, in season three, uh, the man in black, there's a flashback to when he was a kid and he's looking at this book and it's about sort of, it's medieval and it's about knights rescuing maidens, you know, it's sort of explaining part of his you know, compulsion, you know, and his, his connection to Dolores and, 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 um, I mean, that book ended up being a whole project where we, you know, it had, you know, it's not a real book, you know, like there were fans that went like, what is this book? And it was a book that, that Lisa, I think came up with and, um, that, you know, but with the illustrations in the book, we had to go through like, several passes at it. it it was very specific and and it, but it wasn't meant to be like an easter egg it was meant to be storytelling right and yeah I think, clearly and, yeah and that's what and that's we get we get those you know and and a lot of times we don't know where where is this going i have no idea where this is going i mean i i remember in season two i kind of hid from the actors because nobody knew where their storyline was going. And I, I there's one, one point I was standing, uh, it was next to Jules actually. And we were in, um, we were, we actually, thank God. I mean, Jonah really wanted Arnold's house to be, um, a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And we, this one house, La Miniatura in Pasadena became, came on the market. It's very rare. And we we were there day one. Like I, we had a great location manager. Her name is Mandy Dillon, and she's a huge part of the show. And she yeah, she kinda, the locations she, are incredible. She kind of zoomed in on it, and I just said, "We got to get in there now." And like Jonah, I said, "Jonah, you have to immediately go and look because we got to lock this down." And and um, uh, and that was um, Arnold's house, and. Uh, yeah, I remember that even from season two. Yeah, and yeah. Then we, it, it was weird. We, you know, in the end, like for season three, we couldn't go back there. Yeah, oh. uh, we we kind of like, you know, honestly, there were, you know, we we're shooting in Pasadena, you know, not, you know, with a lot of people who didn't really appreciate a film crew being there, including a lawyer who live nearby. But uh, <laughs> so in season three, we ended up building, building it. And then uh, due to like, mostly because of stage space, we had to make a, um, that, that room was a flex room of 
Frank Lloyd Wright La Miniature parts that we could reconfigure into making other rooms out of. Oh, a little modular design. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this one, that's not that bad. And then when we got into it, we realized how integral his designs were. And, <laughs> and I was going, oh, my God, this guy has so screwed me. I, this is hard, way harder than I imagined it would be. And uh, we, we did make it work. But, uh, you know, and then, um, you know, and then Paul, you know, I love Paul Cameron. He is, he is the taskmaster. And we were, we were like going through like uh, <laughs> framing, like how it would frame, you know, what the frames would be in the given the mm-hmm. size of the rooms. And I'm mm-hmm. stu- also trying to squeeze all the sets into one space. And he, he he's like really challenging me, but we did work it out in the end. But it was like, uh, uh, you know, it's such an, um, the fact that season we got to actually shoot in it, you know, at all was all credit to Mandy. So it's right. amazing. Wow. But um, but I was standing there in what this room with Jules, and we we're talking about like why is why is the host making machine in this room? <laughs> and she's asking me, and I go, I, I, she's, I said because Dolores is making copies of herself, and she said what? And I said Dolores is making. Nobody's supposed to know this. <laughs> this is, and then I didn't notice that um, uh, Tessa was in standing in the doorway oh and i said so that's not hail that's dolores mm-hmm. and and she looked that's over how she at, found out well i i don't know i kind of ran out of the room because i was so terrified that i like because it's not actually if the actors kind of know where it it's changes going, their performance yeah and i so yeah. you can't tell them and so but i kind of knew and so it was after that that the Actors all started, I do know that they all started targeting me and, and mm. I would have to hide because <laughs> it was like, I didn't think I met Ed Harris until his very last scene of season two because I was hiding because I kind of knew the story and I didn't want to have to like, you know, not say it, you know, because I'm not a very good liar, honestly. So, um, except when it comes to getting a job. Oh yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> well, they found out really quickly, you know, so yeah. <laughs> so, anyhow. so Wow. What a team on this show. And, you know, I mean, it's obvious it shows, um, you, you mentioned so many things though. And, and I love it. You, you, you answer questions with a whole story, which gets into other things and it touches on, on so many topics. One of the things though, that, um, that you mentioned a few times that I just want to be like clear on for people is in general, and then if it's different on Westworld, let me know. But in general, what is the difference and then the collaborative relationship between a production designer an art director and a set decorator? Uh, John, you want to, you do this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cause 'cause you're, you've done, now you've done both. You've been the art director and the designer and you've had to interface between, you've watched me have to interface with Jules, (laughs) the decorator and you at the same time. And then the budget as well, you know, because, you know, honestly, John had to bear the brunt of the, the, he's the first uh, wave on the, on the budget front. And uh, which is tremendously, that's a lot of pressure, Mm. you know, because it's not like we have 
I mean, people think we have a ton of money. For what we do, we actually, and we do, we, I mean, we do have more money than two broke girls. It's true. <laughs> but for what we're doing, it's, it's always like a, a struggle. I mean, it, it is really hard because, because the show is, you know, and, and Jonah and Lisa write expansively. Yeah. That's part of what it is. And so I, it's so funny. We, we go into production meetings in the beginning and people are just like their mouths are falling out. Like how, literally it's like, how the hell are we going to do, you know, it's, you know, and we're not that far out at when you're up to the production meeting and it's like, mm-hmm. how the hell are we going to do this? Fortunately, they're responsive. You know what I mean? They in, in a good way, they kind of like in, in, in the, all the best ways, because they're like, if you can't do it, you can go up to them and say, I can't do this. But you have to come up with the, You have to come up with a solution. You can't just say I can't do it. You have to come up with like an alternative. And they're open to it. It's not like they're dictatorial in that way at all. In fact, they listen like if Jules thing, Jules like is sitting in the production meeting and she goes, what the fuck? We're never going to do that. They will listen, you know, because they trust her and because she has good vision and they know that. And they do that with like most of the Mm -hmm. crew. They'll listen to they'll listen to them. That doesn't mean they're going to ask for less. They're always going to ask for more, right, John? Yeah. They just yeah. It, they're always asking for more, and so your challenge is how do I give them what I can give them and still tell the story? But John can answer the question about the three, you know, dealing with in the yeah. What's what's the difference between a production designer and art director and a set decorator, and how do they work together? Sure. Um, so I, I mean, I think the most basic layman's terms of like the traditional relationship is you can kind of compare a production designer almost to an architect, um, finding the environment, creating the architecture, um, thinking about the relation of the architecture to the environment and the color theory. And then the decorator um, can kind of be likened to an interior designer that comes into that and basically lays in your typical layer of dressing. Um, carpeting, curtains, wallpaper, um, in collaboration with the designer, uh, but also brings in the ashtrays with the half-smoked cigarettes and the rolled-up newspaper with the stock trade paper showing, um, you know, kind of bringing in the character and the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and the storytelling. Exactly. Um, the supervising art director generally uh, works, uh, you know, right, right alongside the designer to help facilitate the logistics of the design in terms of um, budget, time allowances for construction, um, assigning the, uh, the various talented members of the art department to help execute um, that design from concept through drafting um, and then through management of construction, um, layering in graphics, uh, layering in um, uh, you know, integration with the fixtures and, and lighting team uh, and disseminating all the design information to the various departments um, uh, that help to craft the, the final look. Uh, and then as, as Howard was saying, um, generally the supervising works a lot with the budget. Um, mm-hmm. And then therefore the parameters set by the producers and trying to find the best way to give the designer and the look of the show exactly what it deserves in terms of scale um, and need and mitigating as well the obstacles of finances and time, um, which wow. are generally um, less forgiving. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
Wow. So, so you you really need to also know like accounting and you work with the production manager, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You're in the couch every day. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, pitching and then begging for forgiveness. <laughs> no, and he, he and then uh, what's great about John is that, you know, if if it goes from Jonah and Lisa and then it comes mm-hmm. to me and then it goes to John, yeah, it's still way too big. It is still way too big, and honestly. And then so all the negotiation you have to do with the people who are actually going to say, yes, you can have this money, and you have to explain to them why and why it's important and why it's important to the story and why it doesn't make sense that we're spending all this you know, trying to like illustrate to them, this is what you're going to get out of it. That's what John had to do in order to move forward. And then even, even beyond that, John would also determine who would do it. Wow. And that, that is actually a, a huge skill because there are people who are good at certain things and people that aren't good at other things. And so who, you know, and given the schedule, you have to kind of, he has to do all the scheduling. It's so difficult. He has to figure out the workflow of everything and all the departments and how they interface. So it's not just the art department. It's the guys building the concept vehicle or the concept motorcycle and why they are behind and why, you know, and and are the set designers delivering the materials to them when they need it. And it, it is like over i'm honestly it's an overwhelming job and i he it just he extremely good at like figuring out i think this person is the best person for this thing because i think they will they can run with it so that we try not to give people stuff that they're going to be overwhelmed we try to give people who will you know an opportunity to shine and john is very good at that he's very good at like and then supporting them after they've gotten it even if they're concerned they can't do it he's really excellent at that and so it it, it's all about like so you're budgeting you're dealing with the producer and you're also team building and you're also trying to convince the construction <laughs> construction department why the heck they have to build something that should be six weeks and two weeks. And and how do you do that? I mean, how, how do I give, you know, I'm sitting there, I want it to be, look this certain way. And John's trying to figure out like, hey, we only have two weeks. And how, how can I, what are the ways we can cut corners? Or what are the ways we can, you know, what are the pieces we really need? And then he comes back to me and says, this is what it's going to be. Can you live, can you, is that going to work? And, you know, he's got, he's a designer. So, I mean, I had the huge benefit of working with a designer, you know, and it, because he, his decisions were, you know, almost unilaterally in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Wow. John, I mean, it, it- it sounds like you have to not just wear so many hats, but be like deeply skilled in all these disparate areas from accounting and, and the art of negotiation to, you know, having a real thorough understanding of uh, design, aesthetic, the principles of storytelling, um, you know, how things are actually built, what is required, uh, management and leadership skills and knowing how to delegate and who, you know, being able to see um, 
who can can you know it's kind of like what a casting director does but just not for the the character roles but for the jobs on set how do you i mean wow <laughs> you must have your life uh outside of i mean what is your life like outside of that when you're suddenly dropped into the quote unquote real world where it's not like that how do you adapt yeah i mean i am trying to balance um also being a husband and a father of a three-year-old at the same time so my gosh um, wow yeah uh, my daughter was actually born right in the midst of season two um so i had pictures with her oh. as an infant on the um shogun um shogun world uh edo period town which is pretty awesome wow um you must have your stress reduction tactics like down to a T. <laughs> I run a lot. <laughs> you run a lot. Um, what else do you do? How do you, like, how do you actually do your job and maintain sanity and effectiveness? I think. I don't know. I, I you, someone has to tell me because I've, I, I am impressed every day by how that happens. Well, there's, there's like a, a way you do it because clearly it's not just you're doing everything by intuition. What are like the tools? And these could be like psychological tools, like the way you think about things basically. But what are the tools you do to do your job effectively? Well, I think first and foremost is you surround yourself by people that you trust. Um, and I think Howard and I have a very strong, like trustworthy relationship. And then our entire team that is with us um, supports that uh, level of integrity and quality to the same degree. Um, I think at the end of the day in the Los Angeles art department, um, we had uh, in totality, not simultaneous, but 47 people that were in the art department. Um, and that's not mm. including the Singapore um, or the Spain art departments. And that's not including, you know, construction and set decoration. That's just the physical art department. Um, mm -hmm. And and each person that came into it is just as vested in the property, I think, as, as Howard or, or myself um, and brings ideas and Easter eggs and philosophies and passion to the to the table. So I think it's just a matter of finding the right connection of the assignment with a person that would be passionate about it. And I think part of the beauty of Westworld is that the um, expansive design opportunities so varied. I mean, one day you're doing futurism, then you're doing World War II, then you're doing medieval world, then you're doing Shogun world. Um, it's it's such a variety that you're never bored and you're constantly challenged in a way that keeps you kind of reinvigorated. Um, and, you know, there were people on the show that were very strong in one particular suit of architecture, but they always had a passion to do another. And so, you know, part of the thing was um, we tried to help people uh, enlist their passions and try something different out a different style. And if time allowed, you know, we could let them kind of explore that for a bit. And, and generally, because they were so vested and passionate about it, it paid off immensely. Um, and so I think it's just it's a matter of, like I said, just finding people that you trust. And we had an unbelievable uh, crew um, and team uh, surrounding us to help kind of push that vision. Mm -hmm. Are there and, uh, that, I have to say that that team was built by John mm. primarily. Primarily, I mean, certainly there were people that I, I felt I needed in to to work on the show, and but they were actually people that John knew too as well. So, well, except for a one or two, but uh, but I I think that um, you know, John's great talent in toward the balancing act that he has to. I mean, I have a balancing act in terms of I have. 
showrunners with a giant view <laughs> and directors who want to infuse their own personal take on things. And I have to kind of negotiate between the, uh, the, what's going on, you know, uh, uh, in that regard and trying to get both of these people what they feel they need to, to tell the story. And John has this great talent of assessing people and, and figuring out when you can give people more and how they'll respond. Can they, will they be able to do it? And it, it rise to the challenge. Yeah. And it, it, you know, and we are fairly successful with that. But I, like I said, it's given even that it's like, it's, you know, a lot of people just want to go to work and, <laughs> and, you know, come in and do their work and, and go home. Unfortunately, Westworld's not one of those shows. It's, it's just, um, it, it's a little bit 24 seven. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it gives you a level of fulfillment that I think, frankly, people who are in this industry, you know, it's one of the reasons why they they got in it in the first place. Yeah, no, the people are, you know, and that's part of John and both John and mine's talent, uh, like, thing is that you have to kind of, like, make people feel engaged. And I certainly do. I mean, I'm not one of these, I, I, I can't. I can't possibly micromanage people on this. It's it's not. Yeah, I imagine it wouldn't. It just wouldn't. Nothing would get done then. No, it's it's true. And then so I have to rely on like John and Jules and uh, Joe Andreco, the construction coordinator, and Richie, the prop master, and um, Mandy Dillon, the location manager. You know, because I'm in friggin' Spain dealing with a crew that really doesn't speak a lot of English and trying to create World War II. And I also have a crew in Singapore working, prepping. And so there were, there's about a month period where I only slept a couple of hours. And it was just because I was Skyping people in the middle of the night, you know, to try to keep them going. And, and, and people who didn't know the show, which is, even harder and you know and i had gr- the the spanish and and also the singaporean crew which were more malaysian honestly uh because mm-hmm. i had a friend who shot um uh nelson coates he shot um uh crazy rich asians he he said um it's mostly malaysians and uh, the singaporeans usually do commercials and so the film people are mostly Malaysian and he kind of turned me on to all these people and which was true. And, but because we were shooting in Singapore, we, we were required to hire a certain amount of Singaporeans. So for instance, <laughs> I just, my favorite, the prop, we, we had a really good prop master, but all the people that were working with him had never really done it before. So we were actually I I was Skyping with the the art director. His name is Leslie Yu. And I was like, I could hear him in the background giving a class to the prop people, like how to do props. And I was going, oh, we're so doomed. Because, (laughs) you know, it's such a prop heavy show. And we were doing three units at the same time. And they were shooting on the same day. And the actors would go from one unit to another on the same day. That meant their props had to go with them. And that meant 
getting people to understand what this was was it was insane and so and it worked out and they're were super hard working and it was great but it was like but meanwhile john is running the entire la show because it was it didn't stop and so um but everybody knew that and then everybody knows that you know i kind of i value like the set designers we had some great set designers who are kind of amazing uh, and i really valued valued their point of view you know and you, as long as i could communicate the important thing i had to do is communicate to people what it does what is the story what does jonah and lisa want to tell how what is the future how does it has to fit within this concept of what the future is and so if I could do that in the you know most basic way, then I was willing to listen to anybody's ideas, and and um, and John was there to help put them all together. It was just amazing, so incredible. And it speaks to working with people who you know, like part of what you do, John, is finding you know the right people for the right jobs. Because when you're under that kind of a pressure. Uh, you know, people can snap sometimes and how are you going to handle things tends to, you know, in your weakest moments tends to be a reflection of just your character, who you are. And so you have to like assess all that. Yeah. Absolutely. Not to think where the Friday night parties came into play. <laughs> oh, so they have an, they have another um, benefit that they do, huh? Uh, it was, it was a nice refresh. And I think, you know, the team that we had was just all, really great personalities um everybody you know we, ate, we they were so different they were so different too yeah. it was like i mean it was like <laughs> i remember john going wow this person is such a loud mouth and i said john we could stand one loud mouth in the group <laughs> you know it was like we would talk about like how do you balance you know it's like creating a team like that it's like how how do you do that and like some people you know, you want, you, you just can't, it, not everybody can be a loud mouth, you know? And so, and some people, and then some people are way more stealthy. And so we would talk about that. It was, it's interesting. It's an interesting mix of how to make that work, you know, and John's pretty good at that. But we all, I mean, we were all like a bit of a family. We all definitely got along very well, you know, lunchtime, everyone put their pencils down and we had communal lunch today, you know, together every day. Um, and, and Friday night was a time for everyone to just put away the work and you came together and we just celebrated the week that we had accomplished. Um, and a lot of laughter. Yeah. I mean, Howard's a fantastic storyteller. So generally every theme came with some sort of story behind it, um, which we all loved, uh, to hear. Um, and, uh, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of us are friends outside of um, outside of work and, you know, maintain that friendship during Westworld and between Westworld, after Westworld. Um, and I think that's just that's mm -hmm. what makes it so palatable. You know, the, the stress levels are so high, but you're doing it with a group of peers that you trust and value and you want to support them and you know that they'll support you at the same time. Mm, beautiful. And it must be like on a personal level, pretty gratifying to to feel that your personality is like uniquely suited to the work that you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I, 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 I think that, yeah, you're right. I think in a weird way, like people began to recognize like, 
oh, why did they give me this job? And then they kind of realized when it like, you know, like, oh, I'm doing the Crimean village. <laughs> like, what the fuck is that in the Crimean village? In the free and except that we're shooting it on, you know, uh, a back lot in Santa Clarita. And it's like, and then you just go, okay, here's what it is. And then you just rely on them to actually do it. And then, and then there's a point when they just like realize, oh, this is looking like what the vision was. And then they, they kind of go, they, then they feel really good, you know, and, and, and hopefully that's part of what you're doing, you know, part, part, hopefully you don't want to give people things that are going to fail at. You want yeah. to give things, you want to give people things that are going to shine, you know? Yeah. And so I would say Crimea was, I think the only time I got close to a breaking point where Howard kind of was like, we're doing this, this, and this many streets. And it's in this Afghani back lot, but we're turning into Crimea. And I, I, I think I was in shock. I'm like, okay. And then I think I called him later that weekend. Like you are out of your mind. <laughs> and he's like, we're going to do it. And he, he gave me the pep talk that I think I usually give <laughs> and, and uh, pulled me off the, the brink. And, you know, it was a, that was a big dress for a, a small scene, but um, it's very small in the show. It's very small in the show, but, but it was there. And so what do you do? But we, you know, it's like, you know, I remember Jules going like, I'm not doing any of this stuff. You know, it's a bunch of bullshit. And then I went like, Jules, we have to tell the story. And then she kind of came back to center and then she completely detailed it the way it should be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. mm, interesting. Yeah. You, you get into so many things that I really, I, I find so beautiful about filmmaking. And one of the reasons I really love it, you know, it's a, it's a chance to really have like an experience of fulfillment, you know, uh, as a human being, you have a sense of community the um, collaboration with people, the, um, you know, team effort to create something and then know that, you know, if you're successful, uh, you're you're touching people and you're leaving a legacy that, you know, could could be enjoyed by people well after you're gone. And it's a lot of work. It's very stressful. There's so much uncertainty even, you know, in like where you're going to get your next job because, you know, you're not like on the uh, studio payroll like it used to be. And there's so many aspects to it, but it's so rewarding. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, you can't. What there, one of the questions I wanted to ask, like at the end, but I'm gonna ask it now because it's more relevant. Is what do you personally find most gratifying about the work you do, uh, John? Let's start with you. When I go and watch a project that I've worked on for the first time in the theater or, or on the on the screen, and you see kind of all the components come together between the costumes and the design, the score, the acting, the cinematography, the lighting, and it's all in its polished form at the very end. And even though you worked on it, you're transported to this universe that is so real to you in that moment of time. And this applies to both something I've worked on or, or am watching for the first time as a Virgin viewer. Uh, you just kind of lose yourself into this unbelievable universe. And then to kind of pull yourself out of it and say that I'm a part of that. Like I, I help to create this for other people. Um, it's, it's really special because no matter who you are, you experience a film the same way as another human. Um, you may not internalize it, um, you know, in terms of the, the, the mentality of it the same way, but, but you experience it in this like visceral fashion. Um, that is so special. And that, that to me is what is probably the most rewarding. Mm, beautiful. Howard, how do you feel? 
I, I totally agree with that. That's it's I and I, I keep I ask myself because it's been a while. <laughs> I mean, I've been at this for a long time. Why do I keep throwing myself at this and why do I keep going back? And and um honestly, the storytelling of it all is is I mean on it at, at one point I realized like, oh shit, you know, I'm a designer. I should be more concerned about the design. But I, but I'm always compelled by the storytelling to me. And it, it, it is something that I, that's what connects me. And, um, and, you know, I've made a lot of choices that weren't design choices, you know, and, um, you know, certainly, you know, my relationship with Steven Soderbergh has been interesting because, his jobs always change. I mean, every, every, I'd say jobs is probably not the right word, but every script informs a different part of what he's exploring. It's all, he's always experimenting with some, uh, some version of what he's doing. And, and, uh, and, and then I, I felt like Westworld was such an opportunity for me that I could, I, I mean, how many shows have, period and futuristic like they just yeah they just don't exist and i and i just like unless they're a time travel film that goes from the future to the way past yeah and i just like like oh my exactly and i just kind of went like and really when you think about it the important thing in in Westworld is the storytelling and so and that's what i really liked about jonah and lisa was that you know, in their, you know, with, within what they are looking for, it's, it's about the writing. And so I'm very, I was, you know, very connected to the writing. And so, um, to me, that was the inspiring part. It wasn't just the visuals. And so uh, it, it, it's a weird thing for a production designer to say that, but, but for me, it's the writing that, that, propels you to do those like crazy hours to do all the stuff and to to kind of push things beyond what they should be you know i i i, I realized that you know when i would i did a show called the nick with um soderbergh and it was all set in a victorian um hospital and and there was a lot of things going on when that show started up and i and i had to sort of get their the producers Greg Jacobs and Steven's attention and just going like, I don't think you guys realize that this is the sets are big. They're, they're beyond what anything I've ever done for you guys ever. And I said, it's part of what will tell the story. I, it's not my fault. You know, don't be mad at me later. But they actually did get mad at me later. <laughs> like, like, uh, because it was like, I would, they, everything was so big. And I said, but this is what it is. And so, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like when Westworld is, is so reliant on the visuals to tell the story, it is like my happy place. I mean, it's like, Oh my God, this is like, this is why I'm here. I'm here to tell this story. It is, I am going to be happy if I can figure out a way to give them, you know, what we need to do it. And, and, and so, 
that is like when I feel like I'm singing, you know, I mean, like when I, I feel like the world is in a better place, it could be all miserable because um, unfortunately people are working way too long and, you know, and too many hours and stuff. But, but if, if you're going to propel the storytelling and it's, and the visuals are part of that. And to me, that is like where I, that's the reason I'm here, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, 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 and that's what attracted me to the show. And, and when I got there and I realized that's what everybody there as well was involved in, then I, that's why I, I felt like I, I really want to be a part of it. Wow. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I mean, Westworld itself is kind of a unique example because on a philosophical level, the show is almost like a meta commentary on storytelling itself and and what it does for, you know, for people, for humanity and for consciousness. That's how I see it, at least. Yeah, there's a, there's a bigger yes, and there and I think there is an arc that's beyond the story, obviously, and it's it and it's just what you said. It's it, there's a, you know, um, what is the saying about all of us in the future? Like, where are we gonna where are we gonna go? And I I think if you can be a part of that, it's so valuable, you know. So why wouldn't you? Yeah. And with a story the way it is, you know, all these kinds of stories with with uh, like artificial beings, basically robots in, in, in various forms tend to always go back to themes of, you know, what does it mean to be human? And I think that is such an interesting thing to do. I mean, you know, artists, you know, throughout all time have always like expressed elements of what it means to be human. But I don't think apart from, you know, in stories and books and 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 you know, and cinema, it's, it's really an opportunity to actually question that and take people on a journey of like, discovering what does it mean to be human? That basic question is what drew me to the show. It, it really did. And I just thought, that's a question that should be addressed. Because on, on everyday level. Yeah, like in our daily lives, you mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That is a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, we we won't go there for this episode, but but I'd love to talk to you about that sometime. <laughs> Maybe uh, we'll go to uh, one of the parties or something to invite me and 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 we can chat. <laughs> yeah, the Friday parties are quite are are really the best. That's that's the opportunity for those discussions. <laughs> um, you mentioned. Uh, something um, a little while back in, in our conversation about visual effects. And I really wanted to touch upon that about, you know, the the collaboration between the, you know, the art direction, the production design and visual effects. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times the, the sets are only partially built. You're doing set extensions. How do you, what, you know, what is the collaboration like with the visual effects department? And how do you determine how much of a set to build and are they like taking your designs for um you know for for like different vehicles and and spaceships for example and like you know the completely uh digital recreations of them and basing them off your sketches or are they designing them and you're just kind of like telling them kind of what it should look like how do you guys work together 
Wow. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I just love working with Jay Worth because... Wait, what's he? He's visual effects supervisor? Exactly. Okay. And he, he, is, he is both like so ethereal and pragmatic all at the same time. I, I don't think I've ever met somebody who quite um, balances that act so well. And, and I've worked with a lot of uh, visual effects um, uh, supervisors who, who have all been great, but not c- quite in the way that Jay is. And it, and he's just, uh, what I love about him, he, he's just like a kind of in the way that, um, Julie Ochapinchi is so flat out, like, just like, what the fuck is this? Uh, so is Jay. Jay is just like, um, uh, Howard, what does this world look like? You have to tell me, or you have to show me. He said, I can't start building anything until you tell me what this looks like. So that demand is both, it's a demand, but at the same time, it's like, wow, he's acknowledging that I have a say-so in what this is. And there aren't, there's a lot of visual effects produced, uh, designers who will just do it and they don't give a they don't care at all what the production designer thinks Jay really cares Jay really believes that the production designer should set what that is and now I'm not I'm, I'm certainly not doing all of what he's doing he has to do so much that I can't possibly supervise but he said, but he's like the kind of person who'll go like, you have to give me what I need to do my job. That is rare. That is a rare quality, especially in visual effects. And I really appreciate it. And then once he understands what that is, he's like, he's a brainiac. He's like, I mean, I wish I had half of Jay's brain because life would be so much easier. But he, (laughs) he like, he like, uh, he's so smart and so in tune and so connected to the story and so understanding of what Jonah is looking for in Lisa that he 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 gets all of that and then so and he's been um, you know there since the beginning so he and I. I have this, you know, in the very beginning, he said, Howard, I, I really can't start unless I know what the heck it is. I realized, oh, he's serious, you know, because really season three had way more, you know, visual effects than season two. Yeah, it looked like it. And season one, you know, it, it really did. And it, because we had to extend so much stuff. But yet there always was the same approach. I mean... Jay's not creating 360 environments. And he said, I can't, you know, there's no way I can do that for all those shots. I mean, it's a practical thing. There's a budgetary thing connected to it. You have to give me, this is what you have to give me. You you give me basically a three quarter set and then I'm extending. And I said, okay. And then so, and that was my design sort of directive. And uh, and and I I took that in the best of possible ways. It wasn't like and I once I accepted that it became much easier. But but then Jay also 
relied on me heavily about like, you have to tell me what these, what, what does Los Angeles look like? He really wanted to know from me what it was. And so that's a great way to work because he wasn't just doing it. He wanted to really know. And I, he, he waited until I gave him stuff and, you know, and he said, Hey, out of these 450 projects that Bjarke Ingels has, which ones do you think are the best ones? And I would have to isolate them and for which scenes, not just for, you know, and so I would like go through them and do them and select, make select of like this, these are going to show up here and those are going to show up there, you know, and even though I wasn't designing at all, I was, actually dictating the shape of what LA was based on that. And once he got that, he, he could take it from there. And, and, and then, cause he has such good instincts. He's, he's so like attuned to both Jonah and Lisa and what the show is that um, all I had to do is like steer it in the right direction. Well, and Howard has a great eye for walking into a space and seeing the, you know, the the bones of a of a place that can be digitally extended or augmented even physically with construction. And we had a really strong team of concept designers um, that did paint most of all, you know, a lot of those extensions that were used as guides for Jay. And even a lot of our set designers were all um, modeling digitally, so digital models will be provided for um, visual effects. Um, for both environment extensions or the vehicles. Um, you know, we practically built about 50, 50 or 60% of the AirPod, the entire cab, just not the outriggers. Um, and so, uh, but that entire, you know, concept was modeled and given to them for, um, for the actual visual effects approach. And, you know, Howard worked with the concept artists, even on the robotics like George and Harriet and ergonomics and the, the way that they would move um, was all figured out uh, with Howard and, and Tang Lee, and that was, um, you know, handed over to, to visual effects with thinking how an arm would extend or where, you know, where the joints move in which direction. And, um, you know, the riot controls would unfold like a Swiss army knife and there was philosophy and, and a lot of thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was and beautifully think, conceived. You know, uh, it really was a very seamless interaction between art and visual effects. I mean, there, it was such a tight connection between the two, which sometimes, art is gone by the time visual effects is heavy into their production. Um, and throughout the post-production process, Jay was highly communicative with Howard and myself with sending shots for review and do you like this extension? And if they didn't have a design and they took a stab at it, they'd want, you know, Howard or Mike's feedback and we provide that. And I would think that's how it should go. Is that a typical thing or is that fairly unique to the way this show works? I, I think it's not typical. It, it has to do with Jay and his, his, he values my point of view and and um now i'm not saying that uh visual effects supervisors don't value production designers view but he relies on it and and it 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 is wildly reassuring that he he does stuff so and he can't a lot of times he can't get a hold of me and but i mean he has jay has great instincts so i almost rarely could imagine that he would pick the wrong thing but but in but he does choose to ask me and that's um i think that's a bit rare actually uh, interesting so. i feel like it it makes sense that it's the way it should be but i can understand why it doesn't always happen well time is usually the big issue yeah and money yeah. and money 
<laughs> honestly, money. But you guys came up against both of those just as much as anything. Absolutely, because he, you know, time and money are the same thing in so many ways. But I think it speaks to the the level of really like deep collaboration as almost like um, a value of the show. You know, like this is how Westworld has to work. The the team behind it needs to be operating in this way. I mean, I feel like Jay is the giant brain. I, I it's terrible. I think of Jay as like uh, you know in um what was that um, Tim Burton movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, Mars Attacks. Yeah, that's yeah, that's I know. Jay. He has this giant <laughs> brain, <laughs> and wow. he he is so smart. <laughs> It, it's, it's just like flooring how smart he is. He's incredibly smart. And then I have Jules, his exact opposite, who is just all emotional. And, you know, the two of them, the, those two people inform the show in so many ways. It's just like, uh, it's just like, and then there's poor JC, John Carlos sitting over there on the side going like, this is insane. I said, I know, but... But Jay is c- completely correct, and Jules is also completely correct in these their two ways. And then I said, so I had to balance them sometimes. But um, uh, yeah, that's how I, <laughs> I Jay. I'm sure doesn't want to hear that. I think of him as Mars Attacks, but it's in a weird way. <laughs> I see whenever I look at Jay. Jay actually, yeah, Jay actually doesn't have a lot of hair, so you can see the brain sort of <laughs> creeping across his head. Oh gosh, what a great image! <laughs> wow. Well, he is so smart. Sh- He's this. One of the smartest people I've ever... Well, Francis Coppola, but I won't go into that, but okay. I'm sure you've worked with uh, some really amazingly intelligent people, yeah. Yes. Well, to do visual effects, especially, you know, on the level of this show, requires quite a bit of intelligence. Yeah, and then, like, I was in a panel recently and uh, a production designer that I that I he actually was worked for me. It was a long time ago. And he, he, he's a great uh, Richard Hoover. He just said, I can't tell where the visual effects and the uh, production design meet on the, your show mm. so much. And to me, that's a huge compliment. Like, you, yeah, you can't, absolutely. you can't get better than that. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. It's, it's the seamless integration of the two. I, I think is, you know, like the intention always. Um, the way the show works, the, well, okay, you have the collaboration with the visual effects and then, you know, you have your collaboration with the cinematographer and the director in terms of what is actually going to be in the frame. What do we need to shoot, you know, live and practically and then what can be extended? You know, when when things have to be built so much ahead of time, you know, in order to even, you know, know, you know, have the time to build it before, you know, uh, people are going to be shooting on it. How do you, how do you actually know how much to build? Do you do like virtual, um, like scouting in a, in a virtual set? Uh, I, I imagine that'll actually be the future using like virtual reality goggles to like map out, you know, uh, the shots ahead of time and then build the set accordingly. But how do you, how do you actually do it? Well, what you're talking about is, kind of like on the level of Mandalorian mm-hmm. and yeah. uh and they and they, I spoke with the cinematographer of that show yeah and it, it's a main it's 
you know, and I, you know, actually Jonah and Paul and I went down to visit John Favreau uh, on yeah. the set. And Paul was telling me the story a little bit. Yeah, and it was like it was certainly eye opening, and I'm going, oh my god, this is the future, and um, you know, but for Jonah, the visceral qual the visceral quality of shooting on location isn't the same as shooting in a, the void, which is the uh, sort of digital environment that they create. And, and so it's never going to be an option for us because he innately, it's like his connection to film is part of that. You know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he has, I mean, what TV shows shoot on film, you know, no one, but, but he, he does. And he, and, um, and his brother as well. So, um, just to throw that out there, but, um, yeah, they're huge, huge advocates for film, but they're very close and they're part of it. It's part of their, it's not a, it's part of who they are. Yeah. It's not just an aesthetic choice for sure. No, no, it's not. It, it's a, it's an, a learned, acquired, developed, developed sort of thing. And so, so, um, well, just to go back to the question, um, how do you, you know, when you have all the, all the requirements that you're balancing and the fact that you have to actually build the set way ahead of actually shooting it, how do you know how much of the set to build and how much to leave to visual effects when you don't even know what is going to be in the frame when, when they're actually on the set shooting? Well, I, 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 to answer that, I, I always like vet it with Jay ahead of time. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, you know, I said, I really, honestly, in the time frame, I can only do this, and then he will tell me what I need to add, or it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I. So we have that kind of relationship where I can sort of throw it at him and go like. What do you think? Do you think, can I get away with it? <laughs> and then, then generally I know though, it's not that hard. You know, you can figure out what the shots are. I mean, it, generally you can talk to the DP and you can figure out what the shots are and you can sort of move ahead with that. And then you go like, and then, then I just want to make, sh- the, ultimately I just send it to Jay to go like, can you bless this? Mm-hmm. Is this okay? Mm-hmm. And that's that's generally how it works. I don't like say, uh, what do I have to have more? Mostly I, I make a proposal like, can you bless this situation? Right. Like, this is how we're going to shoot it. Right. You know, so, for instance, like, JC, wouldn't you think like the sort of Jean, me, um, cryogenic below storage area, that was a big, mm-hmm. that was a big set that relied heavily on extension. Mm. I imagine. Yeah. And I think I, actually most most of, uh, you know, colleagues and friends that didn't work on the show after that aired um, had to ask kind of like, where did the physical build and the, the virtual build take over? And when I kind of explained to them how much we actually built, they were really surprised. Um, In terms of it being way less than people thought or way more? More. We built more. Um, so the entire catwalk, the ring was built. Um, and then we built a section of cryogenic tanks. Um, so we basically designated 
um, level A, B, and C. A being completely close-up shoot-worthy, B being good for medium shots, and C, we actually had uh, a handful of um, cryogenic tanks printed on foam core and then basically origami folded into the proportions that were wow. good for deep focus, wow. um, but also became trackers for visual effects. Uh-huh. And then beyond that, we, we shot in a parking lot um, that Howard found uh, at a convention center underground um, that was massive. So the actual entire space was physically there, mm-hmm. um, except with the exception of visual effects extended downwards. Right. Um, okay. And so there, the level D tanks were literally cones with tennis balls on them as trackers that we gridded out in the exact pattern of where those tanks would be to their full extent. Um, but then the lighting on the columns, um, uplighting everything was physically done in the space by the gaffer, um, Russell Ayer, all the way through the entire parking lot space. So, you know, so much of the lighting um, was correct and the environment was correct. And I think that's what made a lot of it look so real. Yeah, I can even picture it now. Yeah, and I, that that's very important because when I would give a keyframe to Jay, he would say, this is what I need out of this. And then you would just like go, okay, a lot of it is actually lighting based because to make it feel real, you have to have this kind of like, um, you feel like it, it, you are in the real space. And so um, the lighting has to come, it has to be motivated practically. Weirdly, the things that are physically there, you don't have to have motivated practically. He can put that in. And so, and he, uh, what's good about Jay was go like, you don't need, he, he could tell me like, you don't need all that. You just need this part. And then we would go back and forth about it and then ultimately come up with what we had. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. That was one of the most impressive sets I, I saw and I wanted to ask you about it. So I'm glad you guys kind of talked about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad it sold because it was one of these things where, we at the point we were running totally out of money and it was mm. like how do you do something expansive yet give them this scope that they needed mm-hmm. when i think that entire set was um it was prepped for weeks but it was actually installed in a matter of days um it was so yes. crazy fast how quick it went up yeah because the schedule of the um it, that's in the la convention center and we have to mm-hmm. work around underground parking, right? Yeah, we have to yeah. work around their schedule. Uh, and we have like it's usually twenty four seven. It's uh, completely available now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you guys uh, aren't filming now, so. And then John Carlos has to deal with the twenty four seven part. That's part of your you know, negotiations. Like, how do I pay? How do I pay for that? Yeah. Wow, so much, so many things involved. You know. In that, I remember in that set, there was like the, not Rehoboam, but like his predecessor, I forget the name. Solomon, Solomon. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, Were those, like, were they built or was that all VFX? Well, um, Solomon is a parking garage about half a mile. The hangar, wasn't it? No, half a mile. Oh, no, no, the actual, like, the giant, you know, um, ball illuminated sphere, yeah. Yeah, the first one, Solomon, uh, was a, uh, a parking garage, uh, kind of weird, you know, where you drive down, 
they had this. So the whole outside of it was practical. Oh, like like a um, kind of like a spiraling ramp. Yeah, around it. It was a spiraling uh-huh. ramp, and it was literally less than a quarter mile from our office. Oh, well, that's convenient. <laughs> and it's where I shot um, uh, Usual Suspects <laughs> mm. in a building that I shot Usual Suspects, and I said. You know, they have this weird parking garage. And so we kind of like, and then Jonah really gravitated toward it as a kind of rudimentary version of what it should be. And then um, we, uh, so then, but the ball itself was entirely Jay. But, okay. But, yeah. But, in ha- but, you know. What about the other one, Rehoboam, in the other sets? Well, Rehoboam was a hanger. Uh, in um, no, uh, that was the Hoban was the um, Bank of America, right? Yeah, the one that's like you yeah know, in the modern like office building in like downtown LA. Yeah, and and because when I talking to Jonah, he felt like there was a corporate approach to this, and you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. we're not hiding this; we're we're making it like it's a teaching tool. And so uh, people can come and look at it. it. We're not hiding any of this. We're not. Yeah, like they're a flagship sort of yeah, point of pride. Yeah, and it's, it was a, a part of the kind of like, we're going to make this all friendly. You know, it's really not friendly in any way. It's it's sort of super maniacal and terrible and controlling. But the appearance is that, it's all open and okay. And so that's how Bank of America came into play. Interesting. But was the actual like illuminated sphere built or was that all J in visual effects? That's all J. That's all J. Yeah. The um the the Solomon that you see in episode seven in the hangar that's above the cryogenic tank um lower level, that one did have a fairly sizable amount of a physical build. So um the three legs that kind of came up with the light bars to the um, bridle that kind of sur- like the belt that surrounded the ball um, that was all physically built. And that had to do um, as Howard was talking about earlier uh, request, you know, from Jay, because there's so much interactive light occurring on the reflections right. of the metals. Yeah. Um, and also all the like spinning light strips basically. Yeah. So the actual ball itself with the light, the red lights inside that was put, put in and post um, by Jay and his team. But the actual three metal pillars, um, the kind of the core um, uh, cables that ran up into it, and then the actual um, perimeter belt was all physically built. And then the lighting team actually put an entire light rig inside of it with kind of pulsing red lights to kind of affect the entire environment that Jay then mapped his ball around. Um, so that that one was probably the largest physical build of, of one of the... Um, the controlling devices. Okay. Yeah. And the lighting effects there made a really cool fight sequence that felt, it felt like a completely new experience of watching a fight scene that I've ever seen. Are you talking about episode eight with Maeve? Uh, yeah, I guess, well, you know, it's been a few months now, but yeah, episode eight, I'm <laughs> guessing, but you know, in, um, in that area. So I assumed it might've been episode seven or on that set rather. Yeah, the, the fight sequence where it's like, it was like the flashing, the flashing with the gunfire and you yeah. kind of just see. Yep. 
Yeah, that one was on a stage build. So we built that set and okay. all of the undulating bands were all a physical build. I see. Um, and then we built the base of the ball, like a small section where the cables came out down into Dolores. Um, but only like about a eight foot, I think it was about eight foot um, diameter I section of the ball okay. coming down. And then Jay took it up from there. I see. And how did you determine how much of it to build? Like, why not 12 feet? I mean, obviously budget is an easy answer, but like, <laughs> how did you know what the minimum... With the minimum effective amount. <laughs> there, there was a lot of discussion about that. So, And it, I think what it came down to is sheet goods come in um, four by eight. So we could do two pieces of four by eight and stick them together. <laughs> okay. I'm sure there's always a practical reason why <laughs> some choices are made like that. Very interesting. Well, of course, you know, it's seamless in, in, the, in the final rendition. But, well, could you take uh, the listeners through, like, the design and construction of one of the vehicles from like reading it in the script hearing like futuristic vehicle to making an actual working you know sci-fi vehicle driving down the streets of la oh my god how does that happen oh my god that was so hard (laughs) (laughs) it was way harder than i thought it was gonna be but you know honestly i hadn't when season three showed up i was just like going like i don't know how to do all this shit i'm mean, honestly because it was like um it's welding all do, over again huh? <laughs> how do you do these concept vehicles and then uh and i had some friends who had and so i talked to them and they go howard it's 12 weeks if you if you're gonna like concept a vehicle and it's all approved and it's 12 weeks after that to get it made and i was going like oh fuck we're we're like we don't have that but that's kind of but they were right in the end they were completely correct now so we had like the um motorcycle we had the ride chair vehicle we had the airpod all those things were in that category and we just because each thing was so involved we had to kind of like purse it out to make it happen in the time frame that we had to have so um uh how do i address that uh john carlos maybe you could <laughs> um early early on um Howard was working with uh, concept illustrator Victor Martinez and um, basically looking at research of where, um, you know, concept cars are going and then having to take it to the level beyond that um, of where, where if that became the actual car in production in 10 years, where are the cars in 30 years going to go? Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges was that Jonah envisioned that every single vehicle is autonomous. Um, and, from a practical standpoint, how do you actually have an autonomous vehicle on set? It's not safe. So you have to build into the design the look of it, you know, being autonomous, but it has to actually hide a blind driver. Um, so uh, working with the concept artist, the the actual vehicle design was developed um, in both a 3D and a, uh, you know, a digitally painted form that was approved creatively by Howard and, and Jonah. Um, and then we segued into, um, you know, some third uh, some outside vendors that specialize in, in particularly uh, picture vehicles for movies. 
um, and leaned into their expertise. Okay, so it's not like you contracted the Mercedes-Benz factory in, in Germany to like build you something to spec. No, although, the, you know, Howard was able to secure some unbelievable concept cars like the autonomous Audi that you see in episode one. Well, it was more Rick who... who yeah, Rick Collins. Who actually was be able... Rick Collins got, actually got us um, concept field vehicles from Audi and and um, Mercedes who who like who, who could give us some vehicles and we had to actually change the schedule in order to uh, be able, to accommodate that yeah exactly and I kept and, and so I had to like I had to like jump up and down to like a like you don't understand do you know what this means to get this car this this car is worth a jillion dollars so you have to like you we are going to do it this way and they and thank god the producers listened to me because it it totally worked well john can you speak about like just managing the insurance on a on a concept car that that doesn't even have a value it's so like (laughs) so (laughs) so high how do you guys work with that on a set and have it like drive around a real like city well, as Howard has mentioned, there's a brilliant um, picture car coordinator, Rick Collins, who that was his, you know, he oversaw all the picture cars. So even though we were. Yeah, he had to totally field every situation. Yeah. That you're talking mm-hmm. about. So okay. he, he actually, you know, while, while um, Howard and, and the team managed the design, Rick actually managed the physical production. So it was his, you know, okay. vendors that he, he um, got it would, uh, you know, pass along to us and we'd work hand in hand with them. But um that actually fall under his purview for, you know, budget and, and time constraint. Um, it, we were always on top of it with him, but, um, you know, that was, uh, a hand, as much as like we worked with visual effects and Jay, it was likewise the same relationship with Rick and the picture vehicles. Um, you know, and it, it was like how to say the AirPod, the ride share, the ambulance, Dolores's motorbike. Um, we also yeah. had the luxury SUV and police car, which was an augmented Resvani. So many of these vehicles. And, and oftentimes, uh, you know, we would even just have a, a conversation with Jay and Rick and there would just be a silver Camry rental, rental car sitting somewhere that was a placeholder that Jay could then use as lighting reference and he would change it to some futuristic concept um, in post. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a big conversation between visual effects and art and picture car um, on how to, you know, hit each one of those. Mm-hmm. But you still built several actual working concept cars, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Two ride shares, physically chassis, chassis ground up. Without going into like everything involved. I mean, you know, to build a car, there's a reason why, you know, there's like years of R&D and then just, you know, huge manufacturing facilities and expertise. And you guys actually have to put people in them too and have them drive around, which means they probably need like permits or being able to be street legal, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, how how do you fundamentally like build something that that works and doing it on a like a reasonable timetable? <laughs> well, it was an eye opener, right, John? Yes. I mean, and you lean into the experts. Rick has done this before. His, you know, his talented vendors that had done all those vehicles, had, this was not their first time at the rodeo. Um, and they would advise. And you take a lot of considerations up front. Like, it's supposed to be autonomous vehicles, so there's no seatbelts. But that's not practical for shooting for safety with actors. So in, in the design was integrated hidden locks uh, and, and hatch points where harnesses could be put on for the stunt sequences. And, um, 
and digitally erased and visual effects. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about safety and practicality as well as aesthetics from the very beginning. And it was all integrated as seamlessly as possible with foresight um, to be able to execute it that way. And where were they actually made? Like you have to have like, you know, like- Here, here in Los Angeles. Really? Huh. Yeah, and um, the ambulance was in San Diego. Okay. And you're integrating actual working, like like the ambulance had like screens that were like, sur- you know, um, surrounding yeah. the entire um, top, if mm-hmm. I recall. Were that was that real or was that a visual effect? Yeah, no, it's all real. Uh, the ambulance wasn't actually a working vehicle. It was more of a trailer that we towed and then had the, okay. the towing device removed. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it was the only motor, non-motorized mm-hmm. thing. But the others were all motorized. Um, but yeah, the the and the reason for that was because we had to shoot the interior and the exterior, and it was such a small space that it had to be built almost like practical scenery, like you went on a stage with walls and panels that wild out so you could get camera positions. Yeah, it makes um, sense. Because the interiors were shot on stage, but using the same vehicle with um, camera ports. But right. um, that, again, was uh, you know integration with playback for, with real monitors, which we did on most of our sets. We Wherever we could, um, we would use real monitors uh, you know, inside um, the giant auction where there were those giant screens of the animated Parche Domine painting was mm-hmm. all you know, a 16, 16 wide by 20 foot high LED screen, um, uh, you know, inside the labs, wherever there was monitors. Um, yeah, that's where the producers freaked out. But, and even in the riot, um, the in episode eight, where they changed the screen and there was those giant screens, that was a hundred foot wide by 20 feet tall, four screens, practical, really there. Really? And but- it affected the entire lighting environment of the street, which is, and, and I think by that point, the cost was so high, but the producers understood the value of that tor- sort of scale and what you can get out of it quickly. Um, and, and there was total support with that right away. Wow. And even some of our our backdrops were all the LED screens. So, for example, Hale's office, um, when you looked out her window um, onto the Delos campus, which the exteriors were shot um, with Howard and the team in uh, City of Arts and Sciences, that view, Jay recreated... Um, uh, digitally and it was projected or displayed on the led screen and then parallaxed with the movement of the camera via tracking devices so that that backing out her window was pretty much i would say 85 percent in shot without visual effects touching yeah yeah i remember in episode two paul cameron talked to me a little bit about that and then in episode four i talked with um greg fraser about you know the the volumetric led lighting walls they pioneered for the mandalorian and then that you guys kind of used on on uh, Westworld a little bit in this season. So interesting. You're telling me though you actually like had like 100 foot LED screens hoisted up into the air in downtown LA? It was, um, so we shot the Paul Hastings Plaza and there are these giant um, bays in between columns and we filled four out of the six of them with LED walls. So each was about um, 20 feet wide and I think it was um, 18 high or 16 high. Um, so the entire length when they were stacked together was 100 long down the block, including the columns that kind of separated them. But they did go the full, I think it was, I want to say 16 to 20 feet high. I can't remember exactly. Um, but those were built. We had to prep that entire location where the mech is and the, the big riot sequence that we had um, less than 12 hours to prep that. So we got that at 6 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday, and we shot it that night at 6 p.m. Um, wow. So, and that's, 
that's Westworld. <laughs> you just you get the street shut down, you go out and you dress the entire street and you burn stuff and you have stuff set up. And right across from the street from the is the California Club, which is like one of the most exclusive membership clubs in all of Los Angeles. Um, you know, like the mayor's a member type thing. And they were having a wedding. And I, I just remember that night. Oh my gosh. They the poor the all the wedding guests had to enter through the front, basically walking on the sidewalk alongside like a destroyed Los Angeles street. And I think some of the guests thought it was absolutely amazing and so cool. And I think the other guests were just like mortified. Um I'm sure. We didn't really affect the wedding because it was on the rear of the property, but the uh the entrance and then some of the the you know pre photos before the ceremony were all uh <laughs> in the midst of our chaos. <laughs> My goodness, wow. It's shocking the amount of stuff that you guys accomplish. It's so it's so I mean inspiring is kind of just like the word that encompasses it all because it's like the fact that you guys can do that and pull it off is like, well, you know, anything anything less than that seems pretty doable by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Do you do you even go to the level of like for example you built a working motorcycle uh, probably not from scratch you adapted like an existing one I imagine but was it like electric as it would be in the future or was that like a gas powered? They were gas powered and that just had to do with okay. functionality, time and yeah. Practical. Yeah. And the other the other vehicles they were because you, I'm sure, you know, you got to, like, make compromises and use what you can get. So you, like, took existing vehicles and modified them to build all the vehicles, right? You know, we made those vehicles. So Really? Wow. Yeah. The, yeah. The, um, the luxury SUV police car was the only augmented one. And the and Dolores' motorbike was augmented. But the AirPod, the ambulance, and the rideshare were complete builds. Um, I mean, they, they utilize motors and, and components that, that they could that weren't manufactured. Yeah, bespoke, you're but. not going to build a motor from scratch. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, we didn't build the motor f- motors from scratch for sure. But. but you still need to like know or, ha- you know, have people who can like make all that work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and was... they all did have battery allowances, too, because all of Damon's integrated lighting, um, the linear mm-hmm. lighting and, and the headlights. Yeah, huge power requirements. Well, that was, yeah, that was a big challenge is like, how do you add the lighting to it all? Fascinating. Um, is there anything else you guys want to say about like uh, the, the either the vehicles or some of the uh, the sets that maybe I haven't like asked about? Like, is there is there a favorite set that you guys worked on that you'd want to like bring light to, so to speak? <laughs> JC? Um when Howard locked in the exterior campus for Delos um, as the city arts and sciences, which is like an unbelievable feat. Um, yeah. He and Mandy were able to secure that. And, and it's, it's such a, you know, I think it was built roughly 30 years ago. Um, and the fact that it still, uh, you know, evokes futurism uh, speaks to it kind of it's, it's um, unbelievable aesthetic. So being able to, to create, uh, interior is built on stage, like the Delos boardroom, Hale's office. Um, that was kind of fun because you got to make a nod to one of the you know most notable architects known in our world, um, and and create something uh, new on stage. And I think altogether the the team when they came together on that looked it looked really awesome. Um, and we did a lot of concrete on this season, um, concrete sets. 
but it still had such a level of um, beauty and brutalism at the same time. It was quite fun. Does that mean they're like demolished afterwards or how do you, like when you build, when you build sets that are so kind of, you know, in, involved and with such materials that are not just like styrofoam, how do you deal with that after the fact when they're not being used anymore? Um, we actually had an art director, uh, Karen Stewart, who's really involved in green scenery um, and it's a really notable cause. And so there's uh, ways of recycling that we tried our, our best to um, be able to adhere to as in both like actually recycling um, in a traditional standpoint, but also uh, donations to scene shops. So if it's oh, that's good. something that uh, is not uh, iconic and notable to Westworld um, that, mm-hmm. that we can't, you know, alter, then that would not be shared. But um, we did um, give a lot of scenery um, from some more of the basic traditional stuff to the um, recycling centers so that, you know, less funded productions could use them. Um, and just knowing that it's not going into a dumpster because uh, Lord knows our. Yeah, because production design can be an incredibly like waste producing endeavor. Yeah. And there is a big guilt complex that comes along with that as I think you design a set <laughs> and you try to think of products. Yes. There, you know, there's a lot of products that are coming out now that are much more eco friendly um, and actually using recycled materials. So, you know, where we can be responsible, I, I think we are. Like styrofoam is not good for the environment at all. Yeah, we try to stay away from that as much as possible. Oh, very nice. I'm glad to hear it. I imagine on a show like this, things like that would be taken into consideration. But, you know, when you're facing time pressures and, you know, there's established ways of doing things for decades in the industry, I can imagine sometimes, you know, corners are cut or at the very least, you know, an entire like life cycle analysis of the environmental impact of what you're doing is probably not taken so it's good to know you guys are at least taking steps and considering it. It's always a conversation at the Friday night parties. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I, I want to go to one of those. They sound really <laughs> good. Um, well, thank you guys so much. It's been a really enlightening and, and fascinating conversation. I have a few like little um, kind of like short, like kind of hot take questions in a way. Um, so I'll ask them to both of you and just feel free to, to answer, you know, however you want. Um, the first would be, is there a director or filmmaker you've never worked with that you would love to collaborate with someday? (laughs) Wow. Um, uh, I mean, I've been lucky because I've managed to work with a lot of great filmmakers and, um, so, uh, the answer probably for that is like, uh, are there people, you know, there's certainly new people that I would love to introduce myself to, but, um, honestly, no. <laughs> JC? I think my list is too long for this. <laughs> I'm new good. To this, so. It's a good, good. <laughs> You guys are on opposite sides of the spectrum. It's good, yeah, because JC is like starting out, and um... very cool. Well, I hope I hope your list gets shorter over the years as you work with them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how about what is the most you know? Let's say career wise, because obviously you know there's life stuff too. But if if you want to speak to that, feel free. Um, but what is the most meaningful piece of advice you've heard and and that has helped you in your 
in your career? Oh my gosh. Well, honestly, um, no one's given me shit for advice, honestly. And, and, and that's not a negative thing. It just happened to be the reality of what's going on. So, but I really do feel like the work informs what you're doing. And so as long as the work is engaging, that's what the important thing is. And I, I have so many things that are coming up that I feel like are engaging that I'm just like, when do I stop? You know, and, and, and maybe I don't, I don't know. Because I, I feel like uh, as long as you're being like engaged, that is really the critical component. Uh, as long as you, as someone is like asking you and valuing your opinion, then you're that's you're in the right place. So, as when that doesn't happen, maybe that's when I reconsider. But right now, people are like still engaged in that vision of who I am and what my work is. And, uh, and I, just as a person, would prefer that work always be evolving. So um, otherwise, it's not worth it. You know, if it's not evolving, it's just the same stuff. And it, it just becomes flat out work. But if it's evolving, uh, you know, I'm very excited now because... Jonah and is working on a, a space project and it's like create creating a whole universe and what more could could you ask for hi let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode evidence cameras if you're in the los angeles area evidence cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met they're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera-related, including helping you create your vision. They strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list, which I might add they can do no matter what you need. With tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. One time I was told if somebody asks you if you can do something and you don't know how to, you don't tell them you can't, you just learn it. And I think that's something that's kind of relevant to the industry because every day we're asked to do things that we have absolutely no idea about a certain field or we have marginal you know, experience in it and you, you have to learn it. Um, <laughs> it. It makes me laugh a little bit because I kind of like Howard's story earlier. You know, I've told small white lies as well to get jobs. You know, I, I was called uh, Howard and I have a mutual friend, Dan Bishop, who is doing Mad Men. And um, his art director called me and asked if I knew how to use a certain software program that they want their team to know. And and I was not going to pass up on the opportunity to work on Mad Men. So I said, of course I know it. And I hadn't, you know, I had worked in peripheral programs, but never that one. And they wanted me to start the next day. So you never say no, you just learn it. So I just pulled an all-nighter, figured it out went into the office and somehow weaseled my way through the first week until I kind of learned it. Um, so, I, you know, uh, I think it's okay to tell little white lies as long as you come through on them. Um, and you have, so yeah, if you don't know it, you learn it. Yeah. 
Well, I guess in the end, you know, if, um, you know, as it relates to a job, there's not really much of a difference if you can do it when you say you can do it and if you can do it when you're called upon doing it. So, you know, as long as you can do it when you need to be doing it, then <laughs> then you're good. But <laughs> it, it speaks to something um, that, you know, I've been, um, you know, kind of thinking about recently based on a book called Mindset, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but basically it you know, outlines the difference between people who have a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And what you're talking about is really, you know, the benefit of having a growth mindset. Yeah, we actually have that book. My wife's reading it right now. <laughs> oh, cool. I love it. I get the cliff notes after. Beautiful. <laughs> well, that'll be, that'll really come in handy for um, raising your kid. Setting them up with a growth mindset is going to really like serve them. Awesome. And And apparently people like get that mindset from their parents basically so got some, looks like i got some her. reading to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah or some notes to hear about from her um what's the last film or show you saw that made you feel like you still had something to learn about your craft i feel that way about every show i watch <laughs> yeah the, the content now is so good isn't it yeah this type of show um ex mocking uh oh always kind of like um, throws me a loop. It's so simple and so well done. So that's... that's. Did you see Devs from the same uh, creator? Yeah. Yeah, that had really interesting production design, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very simple. And that's hard to do. Very hard to do. And also not just simple, but what was striking to me about that was it was something like legitimately I had never seen before. And to do something new in, you know, in, in design like that in, in a series or a, or a film feels like a, you know, like a real accomplishment. The simpler it is, the hardest it is to do. And you guys are all kind of like inspiring each other and you know, that's the way art works. So everything is tending to be kind of like a callback to something else. And it's it's like, you know, really interesting when there's something new. Absolutely. We, we, don't, we don't exist by ourselves. It's very funny that um, I worked with Brian Singer on um, Usual Suspects. Oh, cool. My last episode, I interviewed um, Newton Thomas Siegel, who was the DP on that film. <laughs> He's an... He's a great DP. Yeah. He's just amazing. And he's, um, it, it's great because he's uh, also, he's very demanding, right? But at the, at the same time, he's also collaborative. It's, it's this weird balance that you don't get in a lot of people. So that he kind of like, you know, you listen to him and then he kind of like, but he listens to you at the same time. And um, that's rare. And so I just love working with Tom in that regard. And I have sometimes I have to say, Tom, what the hell are you doing? And he, he just kind of like bounces back. And then he's like very pragmatic. He has great vision. So um, you you can't argue with that. But um, um, one of the things that I, I felt like in that show, for instance, um, 
the vision wasn't really completely spelled out and it was for us to kind of fill it in and uh we as a group even though brian didn't dictate it we kind of like took it up so that we we both embraced it and and so that's when real collaboration um starts yeah beautiful so for any upcoming art directors, production designers, or, or you know, uh, set decorators, are there any mistakes you've made that led you to maybe, like, make a vow to yourself to learn from and never repeat that you'd, like, wish could be passed down to you if you were starting from scratch? Oh, God, there's so many. John? I mean, I think it's um, when someone reaches out to me and inquires about about you know, starting a profession in, in art department. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice I usually give is that to train in the craft, um, you know, um, I think right now we're moving to such a digital forefront with, with filmmaking. Um, even though we do, uh, you know, be able to work on shows that value the practical build, um, there's such a high integration with the visual. And so understanding the software to be able to communicate that um, drafting, modeling, um, concepting, I think is so important to be able to convey because I think more so now than ever, people expect concepts that for sets that you would never have even provided um, anything beyond maybe a simple pencil sketch in the past. Um, and so understanding that um, those techniques and those processes um, and training on that, I think is, really going to move you um, a little bit faster um, now. I think um, there's such value in getting your your experience um, in the industry, even if it's a small project, right away. Um, but I think if you take the time to go to one of the, uh, you know, postgraduate course um, uh, universities now that spe um, specialize in this, which wasn't available, you know, historically, uh, I think it just gives you such a strong foundation and confidence in your skill sets. And, and uh, it gives you the connections with your peers who will become the people who are the creative elite uh, in this town in the future. And so establishing that camaraderie with your peer group and then you move up together as a group is, is a really strong um, uh, feature. Mm, that's a great piece of advice. Thank you. Howard, how about from your illustrious career? <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, John hit that note, and I think mm -hmm. that um, trying to extract from people the best that they can have is your job. And then balancing it with the political side of it, it's a, it's a very complex thing. So I think, I think if you can find that and you can, you can tune into people what people really their best sides of them, and then also deliver what your producers want you to, and del and and at the money, it's a real balancing act. And this is something that is um, just essentially a part of the job, and it, it has nothing to do with your talent. It has nothing to do with your vision. It, it really is something that if you're going to succeed, you have to have these pieces. And then hopefully you have the vision to make it go.
go forward. Beautiful. Yeah. I think the idea of like evoking people's uh, potential uh, and ability to like really bring forth like all that they have to give is uh, something I certainly wouldn't have thought a production designer, you know, does, but it makes perfect sense talking to you. Yes, that's kind of what it is. Cool. I love it. Well, thank you both for the amazing conversation. It has been um, a real privilege. Thank you so much. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. And Howard, congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Well, um, me, John, and Julie as well. Yeah, is, is it the three of you? Yes. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I wasn't sure how they, like, you know, delineate who gets nominated. No, it's not just me. Okay. Because it really isn't just yeah, me. <laughs> it's the team. Well, best of luck to you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the results. Well, thank you for all you do and uh, for creating some amazing worlds that I have really enjoyed uh, being a part of as a viewer. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And a huge thank you to Howard Cummings and John Carlos for sharing their time and knowledge, along with Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show. If you're new to the show, I hope you decide to subscribe. And if you can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes a lot of work to make any podcast. And on this show, I do it all. So if you'd like to support me in keeping the show more regular, please consider donating through the link in this episode's description. Thank you so much, and stay tuned for the next episode.